This is TK331, a Star Wars EU slash Legends podcast. I'm Crystal, a Star Wars enthusiast, but I've never read a thing I liked that I couldn't complain about a little bit. And I'm Thomas, a Star Wars completionist who has previously read the entirety of the EU. So. So. Today. We've made it. What are we discussing? We're discussing Spectre of the Past, the first book in the Hand of Thrawn duology, written by Timothy Zahn and published by Bantam Spectra in December 97. Oh, so long ago. We were wee babes. In times of yore. Some of us more wee than others, I suppose. After The Last Command came out, Zahn took a break from writing Star Wars novels until Spectre of the Past, but he did write several short stories in between, including First Contact, Misty Encounter, The Saga Begins, Hammer Tong, Sleight of Hand, Command Decision, and Side Trip. Spectre of the Past came out following The Paradise Snare, The Hut Gambit, and A Number of Galaxy Fear books. Tales from the Empire, Wraith Squadron, Rebel Dawn, and several more Galaxy Fear books followed it. The Empire is on its last legs. If not for infighting in the New Republic, it would have been destroyed by now. Admiral Paleon knows this and has made what could be the most difficult decision of his career. But Moff Disra has his own plans for the Empire. Leia has taken a temporary step back from being the Chief of State of the New Republic and is on a well-deserved vacation, which Han is determined to make sure she enjoys. I think it's fair to say that ever since you finished the Thrawn trilogy, you've been just desperately wanting to get to this book and series. How did you feel once you finally had it in your hands? Very excited. I thought, my troubles are over. My skin is clear. I'm living my best life now. I can finally read this freaking book. It was a long time. Like, it was a long wait. I'm sorry. (laughs) And that may have done more harm than good in the end. Alas. How many times have you read this one? I'm assuming so many. Quite a bit, but nowhere near as much as the Thrawn trilogy because of how late this was in the publishing cycle for Bantam Spectra. Yeah. Uh, I, I do remember reading this as a kid. I have read this several times. Not a dozen plus, probably in the six to ten range for you, my guess. Why are you shaking your head at me? Wow. Okay. And yes, I was looking forward to reading it again. I really like this book. I really like this series. But there are a couple things I want to say about it. First, I'm going to compare this to two other series that one makes a lot of sense and one doesn't make any sense. The first series I'm going to compare this to is Wraith Squadron. And you're going to say, why are you comparing these books to Wraith Squadron? I mean, I could ask that question, but I already know why. Because <laughs> you've told me off mic. It and, makes sense to me. And, and the answer to that is, I had a similar reaction to Wraith Squadron the first time I read this book. And that was... I don't like it that much. It's not bad, but I didn't just instantly fall in love the way I did, say, the Rogue books or the or the original Thrawn trilogy. And the reason for that is because neither the Wraiths nor the Hand of Thrawn trilogy were anything like I was expecting it to be. Mm-hmm. It was so vastly different than what Zahn had done before, it really threw me for a loop and it surprised me. It's been on subsequent rereads of the series that I have really fallen in love with it, though. And the other series I want to compare this to, and this makes a lot more sense, is the Chiss Ascendancy series that Zahn wrote for Disney. In that it's incredibly long, in some ways it is too overly complicated, and you have to really be in the right headspace for it. But if you're in the right headspace, both are fantastic reads. If you're in the wrong headspace, though, you can really struggle to get through them. Yeah, that makes sense. I also think the, these two books, this and Vision of the Future, are so much more important to not just the EU, but Star Wars in general, than most people really realize. So people always love to talk about how great the Thrawn trilogy is, and I completely agree with that. But by the time this comes out, this will have been several months ago, the Utini Twitter account asked, 
what's your most underrated Star Wars series? And I named two series. First, the Krillian Trilogy, which if you've listened to the last several episodes, you know how much I love that those books and no one talks about them. But the other thing I mentioned was the Hand of Thrawn duology. Is this as good as the original Thrawn trilogy? I don't think so. But in some ways, it is just as important for establishing who Thrawn is. We learn, for one, about his species. We learn what a Chiss is. We had no idea what a Chiss was until this, until this series. We learn his full name. We have a much better idea of what he was doing when he was not with the Empire and what he was doing when he was with the Empire. So in terms of establishing who Thrawn is, even though he's dead by now, this is an incredibly important series. So I think important to note, we don't learn any of that stuff until Vision of the Future. Yes, this is true. I think I have had... So I, I know that I... I'm fairly sure that I read these as a child. I but think, probably one time, you think? I think only one time. Because it didn't feel familiar the way the Thrawn trilogy did. No. <laughs> I think almost nothing about these felt familiar, with the exception of Spectre of the Past's opening chapter. Did you um, just read that and stop? I don't know. Okay. I don't think I would have. I think I would have kept reading. Yeah, I think you would have too. But, so to to me, this is even like, this is much fresher than reading the Thrawn trilogy, like in present day. And I had a similar reaction in the end to what you described yourself having. To the first time I read it. Yeah. It's like, it's not bad, but it's not what I expected or what I wanted. Yeah. It's not what i was expecting <laughs> like this is a very for lack of a better word, a very talky series it's very slow and methodical <laughs> a lot of sitting and talking a lot of standing and talking a <laughs> yes. lot of walking and talking a lot of hiking and talking one person standing one person sitting while talking <laughs> we are referencing of course the honest trailers for the prequel trilogy yep just watched those last night it's really accurate but that's not necessarily a bad thing to me no, that that was not the ultimate problem and I, I had. And I think he writes dialogue, not like super entertaining, but very interesting and very well. Yeah, I think, I think my thing that happened was whenever I was reading this book, I was very... You were super into it. I was into it. But then I would walk away from it for, you know, a few minutes or until the next day when I would pick it up again. And I would be like, I don't know if I... What's happening? <laughs> like, <laughs> is it kind of like Benoit Blanc in Knives, Knives Out? Out? When he says, "It compels me, though." Yeah, Would that be a fair way to describe it. For like, you? it compelled you? Yeah, I, I think it's been a rare Zon property that I've read that I that hasn't compelled me. Yeah, and I should say, uh, I think the reverse thing happened for me with the Chiss Ascendancy, as you were describing, happened for you. Because I didn't care for the Disney Thrawn books as much. And so once the Chiss Ascendancy books started, I was like, oh, this is new and different and I love it. But would you say they are similar in terms of just like how dense they yes, are? Yes. And like, you have to be in a certain mindset. I got to also say that like I think the, the reason for the biggest differences between this and the Thrawn trilogy are that Zahn suddenly has, like, the chains of the 90s wrapped around him, dragging him down. Like, when he wrote the Thrawn trilogy, there was not a lot of other material to reference. No. There was no other material to reference. The Han Solo and Lunar Coach Adventures from the 70s and 80s, and that was essentially it. Like, he got to set the stage. He got to do what he wanted. And, <sighs> bless his heart, he tries so hard. Like, I have this theory that somebody came to him 
in Bantam Spectra and was like, Tim, we got to wrap up. Like, we're done. We're wrapping everything up. We got to somehow have formed a cohesive thing out of all of the books that have happened since the Thrawn trilogy and the comics, sad to say. Uh, so can you tie all of that together in a kind of neat bow? And he does, given how crazy publishing was in the 90s, he does a great he job. He tries very hard. I think he does a great job. I don't think it works. I, <laughs> I don't think it's his fault, but I don't think it works. That's fair to say. But well, I, I think some of the things are his fault, but <laughs> not, I, not most of them. I don't know if anyone could have done a better job. I don't think anyone could do a good job. It, the 90s were a mess. A lovely, terrible mess. Terrible. Mostly terrible. I know. <laughs> mostly terrible. Let's, we should probably stop delaying and actually talk about the book. Well, first, talk about the cover. Well, actually, first, I have to give like one final caveat. Oh. Which is that usually the way we do this is I read a book. Well, you read the book. I read the book. And we record before I need read the next book. In a series. You were so gung-ho to get to Vision of the Future, though. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't, um... You couldn't wait. I couldn't We wait. had a vacation, so we weren't going to record for a few more weeks. And it was driving me crazy. So, you, um, you've already read both books at the time of this recording. However, the question section at the end was recorded before I read Vision of the Future. So it would impact your thoughts. My predictions and whatnot. So, integrity there is intact, but if it seems like I know more than I should during... this recording it's because i do (laughs) this is the first time this has happened and honestly i don't think it will be the last oh really i i do think there's gonna be a couple of times at least in the new Jedi order you're gonna want to keep reading okay it was kind of a perfect storm with this one because i had looked forward to it for so long specter of the past did not give me some of the content that I was craving in the volume that I was craving it in. And I knew that in order to get it, I was going to have to move on to vision of the future. We had a vacation in there. And so I knew we weren't going to be able to record for a while. And so it was going to be like, like over a month, probably. Yeah. Three or four weeks since you finished the book before I could start reading vision of the future. And I was like, I just, I, I was so intent on reading it that Tom was still reading Vision of the Future when I started it, so I purchased the ebook so that I could read it while he was reading. Like, there was no patience in this household. No. <laughs> he was gone. So, let us talk about the cover. What do you see? <sighs> well, I see lots of people who have not aged a single day, once again, since the original trilogy. It's never going to stop throwing me for a loop. Luke, Han, Leia, all on the cover. They're they're kind of arranged. So there are four characters on the cover, and they're like kind of diamond. arranged in a diamond pattern. Luke is at the top. He looks very sweaty. Um, I think this is like his Dagobah look when he's training with Yoda. Yeah. Leia on the left is in her Jabba's Palace bounty hunter her garb disguise. and hairstyle, but without the helmet. Han on the bottom I think this is a shot straight from Cloud City when he's looking at Leia before everything goes absolutely pear-shaped. Um, and then the character on the right, interestingly, is Borsk, I'm pretty sure. Borsk Phalia. This is a boffin on the cover. Yeah. And if you look at his right hand, he is holding a document. A document. A rolled up piece of parchment. Schrodinger's document. <laughs> and he also has a sword. Like his other hand is on the oh, hilt yeah. of a sword. Which random 
weird. Never, never comes up. Correct. No. <laughs> Why does he have a sword? The cover artist thought it would look cool. Ceremonial. Yeah, probably. And then the background is just very space nebula kind of situation. Explosion. Yeah. Of course, there's a blurb on the front about how splendid Zahn is from Booklist. And it also says, label this one not just for Star Wars fans, for sure. Which I could not disagree with more yeah, th- strongly. This is a book for Star Wars fans. I feel like if I'm no the- rando off the street is going to walk into this one and be like, "Yeah, this is interesting." Yeah, my mom read this. She'd be like, "What?" And she likes Star- like she has seen the Star Wars movies, but some like of the shows, she would be at a total loss. Yeah, even I think even like regular genre fans, like sci-fi and fantasy fans, who have not who know nothing about Star Wars could not walk into these books and be like, ah, yes, this is enjoyable. They would be like, what the heck? <laughs> what is this? And yeah, there are some ships on the back. What I are those? I think those are the prey birds that the Empire's now using. Ah, uh, okay. I was thinking they looked kind of like E-wings, but... Yeah, a little bit, but... So, shall we dive into Spectre of the Past? Yep. Let's dive. The Chimera is in empty space at the edge of the Empire, or rather, the scraps of the Empire. Admiral Paleon, Supreme Commander of the Imperial Fleet, looks out at the emptiness of space. He's weighed down by too many years, too many battles, too many defeats. Captain Ardiff says they are ready to begin, and Paleon gives the go-ahead. Eight Sorosub Preybird-class starfighters attack. Paleon lets them pass a couple of times to give the predictor more flight data to work with. He then orders the cloaking shield activated. Paleon can no longer see anything from inside the ship. The Star Destroyer fires at where it thinks the fighters will be based on the data that the predictor has collected. The turbo lasers stop after 500 shots and the cloaking shield goes down. Only one fighter was damaged. The other seven are fine. Paleon thinks this is not going to work in a real battle. He knew from the beginning that it was probably futile, but it had to be tried. Ardiff says there must be other ways to use the cloaking device, and Pelion agrees, and he says that Thrawn came up with three of them. But we're not Thrawn. Yeah. Pelion then says, no, Captain, it's over. It is all over, and we've lost. He is so defeated in this moment. (laughs) Ardiff says the Supreme Commander of the Imperial Fleet shouldn't be talking like that. Pelion asks, why not? It's obvious to everyone else. Ardiff says they still hold eight sectors, over 1,000 inhabited systems, nearly 200 Star Destroyers, and are still a force to be reckoned with. How else could they hold their own against the New Republic? Paleon says, we're holding our own for the simple reason that the New Republic is too busy right now with internal squabbling to bother us. Ardiff says, give them time to reorganize and rearm. But Paleon orders the ship back to Bastion and a message sent to all the Moffs to meet at Distro's Palace. Paleon then says, tell them that it's time to send an emissary to the New Republic to discuss the terms of our surrender. I love this opening chapter. Yeah, it's good. Strong. I, I got, I'm getting chills. Like, I have little goosebumps. I have said many times, <laughs> Paleon is my favorite Imperial character. And before this book and series, that's a very weird set. Because while he's interesting, he's not, like, a truly interesting, great character. This is the series where he really comes into his own, starting with this first chapter. I think that sometimes characters like this become favorites just because they're around a lot. That definitely helps. Like, they're present. He's been around a lot. He was Thrawn's... Right-hand man? Right-hand man. I was about to say protege, but, like, not really. Eli Vanta was a protege. I wouldn't call him Sort of. More than (laughs) Paleon. 
God, it sucks to be someone that Thrawn is trying to do anything with, like, <laughs> yeah. in terms of a personal relationship. Just wouldn't want to be part of that situation. <laughs> the Falcon arrives at Ithigan. Han is not a big fan of President Gafferson, who is temporarily taking over Leia, and he calls him Puffers because of how much he talks, which upsets Chewie. Chewie's a big fan of him. <laughs> I love this little, like, Han and Chewie have opposing politics, apparently. <laughs> the, the idea that, I, this is very, like, space racist of me, but the idea that Chewie has, like, a, a political opinion at all was actually kind of surprising to well, me. One of the things Chewie liked about it is, is, is Puffers, or Gavrisom, is not human. And I think he very much appreciates yeah. that fact after... But he he loves Leia. He adores her. He really respects Mom Mothma. I think he's very but happy to see... these freaking humans. Yeah, someone else. <laughs> Just over it. And I, I, I agree with that. It's nice to have something different. Luke also arrives in his X-Wing to help out. They are here to settle a dispute between the Diamala and the Ashori. The Diamala don't want to rely on local patrol ships when they get to Ashori ports. But the Ashori don't want armed Diamala ships coming into their system. Fair enough on both counts. This was the beginning of, like, my eyes kind of glazing over a bunch of new proper nouns. This is... I I sound like such a whiny child when I talk about this, but, like, Zahn does have a habit of just... He does. Like, inundating the reader. And, like, I think it can totally work. And like we've said before, if you're in the right headspace, just a it'll he be does this yeah, so hard. Even more than this. And I was like loving that. So the, this I don't know. I was like, why, I don't care about this trade dispute. <laughs> one reason why I like this series on a, on a reread is because I have an understanding of who these two species are. Yeah, I think having the context of what goes on with them later in these two books helps understand this a little bit more. But one criticism I will have for this is I wish Zal reviews at least one species that was known to us. Yes. I think that would have helped a lot. Yes. And we've had a lot of different things introduced to us. You could have used a Mon Cal. Like, we've known them since Jedi. Yeah. So uh, I, that is one of the criticisms I'll have is he does a little too much or like a Sullustan or a Bith or like yeah. you have a lot to pull from. It's fine to introduce new things but like limit or even like introduce something from another book. Um, introduced uh, Dorsk 81's race. I can't remember what they use their race. Uh, what were they called? The clones. I don't remember. But yeah, you know, do something like that. You, you use an established race in the EU, not even just from the movies. Like that. That also I think would have helped. Yeah. Just the familiarity. So that is a definite criticism I have of just Zahn in general, but in particular for this book. Is his original stuff like this too? I haven't read any of it, but uh, the two series I've read, humans do feature prominently, which helps. Um, but, you know, in the sci-fi series I've read, he definitely introduces a number of different alien species and alien concepts to us. This is why the POV character in new fantasy and sci-fi settings is so often a fish out of water or someone from a corner of the world where things seem more normal Brain to in us. Real time. Yeah. So that, like, we can slowly be introduced to the world in a way that is not so overwhelming. <laughs> Luke and Star Wars. Yeah. Gavrisham thinks that Leia is with Han. But Han is letting her and the children have a real vacation. He came instead of her. Han says he's officially liaison to the Independent Shippers Association, so he should do fine. It's fine. I've got experience. It's all good. Leia is on a leave of absence, and he is not going to ruin it for her. So he left her on Wayland with the children without actually, you know, telling her. And, like, how could Wayland possibly feel like a vacation? I just gotta say. That's fair. Like... It's not like that place is full of happy memories. No. 
but More it like is full of memories about the time we all almost died. It is out of the way. Like if you want a private secluded vacation, it's that's a good spot. And the Nogri have moved in. I, yeah, I guess I wouldn't go back there. But all of these people deal with their trauma in a very different way than me. So Han tells Luke to talk to the Diamala while Chewie and he will talk to the Ashori. The Diamala greet Luke, but don't welcome him to the conference. They actually want him out of the system entirely. Han says Luke stays. They agree, but only as an advisor, and he will be absent from the actual negotiations. Interesting. Their Ithagini hosts hear about this and set a monitor for Luke to watch the negotiations from his suite. It takes two hours for Luke to realize the negotiations are going nowhere, and it takes Han another hour to admit it to himself as well. Luke says that it's not too late to bring Leia into this, but Han says no. He can do it without her. She gets a vacation. She deserves a vacation. And I, I appreciate Han just d- doing this for her. Like, we all know it's not going to work, but I really love that he is trying to help Leia out in this regard. Yeah. They are interrupted by a call. A Sarkin freighter is on its way under a customs red alert issued by New Republic Commerce. They ask if the New Republic representatives want to observe the procedure. Han declines for now, but says they may come up later and take a look. After the call, Han then asks Chewie to pull up traffic patterns around the planets. And Luke asks if Han knows the smuggler coming in, because clearly Han knows something is up. And Han says it's not a smuggler, but there are pirates on the way. Luke asks if the Sarkin is a feint, and Han says yes, though the ship itself doesn't even know it. It's an old trick. Call in an alert on a ship on the other side of the planet from where you plan to attack. But... They can't tell anyone else. The pirates will have a spotter, and they will call it off if someone is alerted to their presence. And Han's like, this will make us look bad, so we have to handle this ourselves. So the plan is, the three of them will take care of it. There should only be a handful of pirates. But R2 is not thrilled with this plan. It's fair. Luke has been restless over the last few weeks, and this trip isn't really helping. He's talked about it with Leia, and she thinks that it's some kind of subconscious prodding of the Force. It's telling Luke to do something or not do something, which really narrows it down. Yep. He's been meditating a lot recently, but hasn't gotten any real answers. So they go to space. Pirates come. Han is wrong. It's not a couple of ships. It is eight against the Falcon and a lone X-Wing. Luke thinks that he could use the Force to end this immediately by, you know, going all crazy Jedi. But then he sees Palpatine and Exar Kun in front of him laughing. He's like, oh, oh, I, I shouldn't do that. So he tells Han to take the lead on this one. I like imagining Luke making the mouth sounds that you just made because it really doesn't seem like something he would do. <laughs> Their attack surprises the pirates and they get in several shots before they can respond. Han destroys the ion cannon that was being used to target the other ships. Luke senses something strange on the pirate battlecruiser, something he hasn't felt in a long time. Dun-dun! They drive the pirates off. The transports thank them for their help. Pirates usually have big, flashy logos, but these ones didn't. So Luke and Han suspect they were privateers hired by the Empire just to cause chaos in the Republic. Luke wonders where the Empire got the money for this, because the Empire, as discussed earlier, not doing so hot right now. He then realizes what he felt on the battlecruiser. Clones. He suggests reaching out to Card to see if he's heard anything about clones. Han says Luke didn't say it like he meant it and asks if there's any trouble. He then says, let me guess, Mara? Luke tells him to let it go. Han says, sure, they'll contact Card and Luke can go back to the Academy and run away from his problems. (laughs) You had a comment about this. I don't know. It was just funny. Like Han makes this very pointed comment about like basically saying like, why can't you just ask Mara? 
And Luke's like, I guess I could. And like makes a big freaking deal about it. And Han's like, no, no, I'll talk to Card. You can go back to the Academy and like not worry about this, whatever. It's very like, I don't know. It was a fun hint. Luke then asks why the Diamala don't like him. And Han says they don't trust Luke. They think he's gotten too powerful. To them, a Jedi with so much power always slips to the dark side. Doesn't quite match up with the prequels, but fair enough. Luke wonders if they are right. Yoda could have beaten the Empire, but left it to him. Callista had run from him because his power had intimidated and frightened her. Not quite how it worked, Timothy, but... All right, fine. (laughs) Timothy, I don't think that's true. (laughs) Luke knows he needs to meditate on this new potential problem. I, yeah, I didn't. Um, there will be a few more comments about Callista throughout these two books. Zon was clearly not a big fan of hers. But also, he just, I feel like he m- misrepresents what happened there. I do too. And it doesn't, like, don't get me wrong, I'm not like Callista's number one fan or anything, but I felt like her whole conflict was she, by like, becoming non-force sensitive had this whole new perspective on life a whole like she had a whole different life i mean she's a woman out of time and now she doesn't even have the force and so she couldn't stick around with luke because she needed to like become a new person like she needed to find herself again and this whole like callista is intimidated and frightened by luke does not match up with that it makes her seem Again, don't get me More wrong. More damsel in distress? Yeah, like, I don't think any, like, I don't think a lot of women in Star Wars in the 90s are written well, but I at least felt like Callista, while she frustrated me at times, had, like, her own thing going outside of Luke, and this kind of takes that away from her, and I'm just like, Zahn, why are you doing that? And usually he's a much better writer of women, too. Yeah, yeah, like, like he, I mean, he writes women in these two books that are... I was about to say great, and then I was like, actually, there's some stuff he does with Mara that I don't like. (laughs) Not Inspector of the Past, but in Vision of the Future. But yeah, like, usually I don't have complaints with how he writes women. I don't like the way that he has, like, reimagined Callista here. Yeah. I I think he's doing it for a reason, because he's (laughs) he's trying to get Luke to be almost afraid of himself. Yeah. And this all leads up to a separate conversation that eventually happens in Vision of the Future. And I think Zahn is love that conversation. strategizing for that. But I don't think he needed to do this to set that up. Agreed. And I, I think it's kind of cheap. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> this actually, I think, bothers me more than the just too much detail. Except, like, there are a few retcons in this book. This is probably the one that bothers me the most. And this is speaking of someone who's not a big list of fan either. Yeah. Like, give the lady her due for, like, is she a great character? No, but she's better than this. Like, he could have easily just said, Luke realizes he did the wrong thing and was too attached and too obsessive by, like, hunting Callista down when she didn't want to be followed. Like, that should make him afraid of himself. That's an easy way to, like, change this so it's not... And one of the few good things about Planet of Twilight was he did realize that in the book and let her go in the end. Yeah, but, like, you can easily reference the, like, you know, weird eight months to 12 months, whatever it was, we're not sure... Where he was, like, just off the rails, like, not listening to what she wanted for herself. Like, she left him a message saying, don't follow me. And he was like, hmm, gonna ignore that. Like, he should look back on that and be ashamed. And yeah. that could easily be the thing that he's thinking about here. I, I really don't know why Zahn did this. Yeah. Like, it's weird to me. But all things in retrospect. 
There were a few things in the galaxy that could shock Leia speechless, but Han, he's still one of them. <laughs> it's got to say, Zahn does write Leia and Han so well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Better than maybe anyone else. I guess that's a good example of a woman that he wrote well in yeah. these books is Leia. Like, yeah, he always writes Leia really well. Yeah. 3PO tells her that Han left several hours ago, <laughs> and he's kind of anxious about telling her this. But she decides to do nothing. If she intervenes at this point, it will make the New Republic look bad. It'll make it look like she has a loose cannon for which her she husband, does. which is true. And honestly, at this point, everybody knows that. <laughs> so I don't know why she's trying to keep it a secret. But it will still look bad in negotiations. So I do I do get that. Yeah. The New Republic has tried to save Hanagir for the Nogri, but it was too far gone. And now many Nogri have moved to Wayland's to live their life. They're, they're, rec- they're making this their home and they're reclaiming the terrible things that happen here for themselves. And I, I actually really like that idea. I agree it's not a great vacation spot, but I think for the Nogri, this is a wonderful spot for them to settle. It's fine. As long as it like supports their like biological needs, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't be there. And again, it's a it's out of the way, it's occluded, which I think like they're not gonna settle in like Corellia, for example, or Coruscant. No. Yeah. One of the Nogri, Kak Mame, says Leia doesn't relax enough. And she says that with Garrison to take care of the presidency for a while means she may finally be able to do so. No. Incorrect. Yeah. Kakmame says they found a Deveronian digging at Mount Tantus and brings Leia to him. His name is Lakjeet. He says he's a simple seeker of knowledge and truth, and he found six data cards and claims ownership of them under the Devil Agreement. Lakjeet says he learned of it from Card. Basically, the Devil Agreement is this thing where they decided, like... The Nogri want to destroy everything there. Destroy everything from Mount Tantus. And someone was like, hang on, hang on, hang on. What if there's stuff from other cultures? We should return those to those cultures. And so the double agreement is like, stuff can be analyzed before it's destroyed to determine if it should belong to someone else. Leia says she'll pay Lockcheat 500 credits now, and then she'll examine the data cards herself. Afterward, the New Republic will pay the rest of the full value on them, which will be determined by Leia or a historical expert it is his choice which. Jason is bored and wanders over to see what his mom is doing. She tells him she needs to handle this. She starts looking at the data cards. The fourth is labeled the Hand of Thrawn. Dun dun. Jason instantly knows something is wrong and asks what the Hand of Thrawn is. Leia doesn't know. And Jason asks why is she so scared of it then? But before she can read it or attempt to read it, Lockjeet drops a smoke bomb, steals a speeder and runs away. I do have to say one other minor complaint about this book and series. Despite the fact that Zahn created Jason and Jaina. He hates them. <laughs> no, that, I don't think that's true. But they are. I'm joking. I, he did not. Woefully absent from this book. Like, this is the biggest scene. He did Jason not here. write the kids into these. And given yeah. how complex and harrowing this book is, and there's not really, like, there's not a repulsor for anyone to find and do stuff with. Like, this is a galaxy-spanning adventure. It's not localized the way the Corellian trilogy was. Yeah. It makes sense for them not to be in it. But especially after the Corellian trilogy, it feels... I do miss them a lot because I do love those kids so much. Well, I think he might have done a look back over how often the kids have already been included and been like... kidnapped. It's like, I don't want to do that again. We don't really need them around for this. (laughs) I I agree. This conflict doesn't make sense for them to be here. Like, I'd rather them be absent than, again... In Darker Apprentice of Their Adventures to the Underbelly of Coruscant, I'd much rather them Which not be were there. Irrelevant. But I still do miss them. 
I have to just have to say that. Yeah, I mean, after like especially reading this right after reading the Corellian trilogy, I got much more attached to the kids than I had been previously, and really like them and care about them and fear for their futures. Which kind of probably makes it better that they weren't in this because Zahn can do terrible things to people. Yes, he can. <laughs> Leia looks at the data cards. I realize that of the six he gave her, only five are authentic. One is too new. He still has it with him. Lockjeet gets to a ship and takes off, but a Corellian Action 6 bulk freighter stops him. It's the wild card. And Card and Mara are both on board. You were happy. You were so happy. I was happy. I was like, this is very coincidental that Card just happens to have shown up and Mara is with him, but I don't care because I a, missed them. There's a good reason they're here, though. <laughs> there is a good reason they're here. Leia asks, in fact, why they are here. And Card says he's been experimenting with hiring the Nogri when his people have to go to dangerous places. Smart. He also says that he's not very welcome on Coruscant these days. People remember what he did, but resent his help. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like Coruscant. Leia offers to try to change things, but he declines her help. Leia asks about Mara's trading company. She says she heard it failed. Of course, the trading company that she was running in the Corellian trilogy. And Card says it didn't fail. It was never meant to last. It was just to give her enough experience so she could take over his organization someday. And I, I kind of like that idea. Yeah, I think this works fine as a retcon because it's not really mentioned in the Corellian trilogy why she's running this company on her own and just kind of like out of left field and when you get a sight into her mind it seems like she's quite enjoying running it on her own she has no real thoughts about card yeah but i think this works fine as a like as reasoning lockjeet protests his treatment he doesn't recognize card at first <laughs> He's like, card hired me oh no card is here yeah he says he was bringing the data card to card both Leia and Mara catch the lie in the force. He admits he was going to sell it and would have gotten a better price than what Leia would pay. Card asks who would pay, and Lockjeet says you'll know as soon as you read it. After taking the data card from him, they let him go. They can't actually hold him for any reason, so he goes off on he goes. Leia goes on to the wild card to read the data card. There are too many cards in these sentences. So many way. cards. <laughs> card mm, comments that now <laughs> they know why Borsk was so anxious to see Mount Tatus destroyed. The data card apparently says the Bothans apparently were involved in the destruction of Kamas, but it doesn't specify which Bothans or even which clans. Leia asks Mara if there's anything about this, and she says she doesn't. Palpatine never talked or bragged about the attack. Leia says she needs to take this to the High Council right away. They know that Lockjeet will spread the word out of spite, if nothing else. Card offers to give Leia a ride back to Coruscant since Han isn't here. Mara also asks if there was anything on the other data cards. Leia says one might be important, but she can't say anything about it right now. She's like, hand of Thrawn, Mara was the hand of Palpatine. Yeah. Eh, a little too close for comfort to say right now. Yeah. And fair enough. The thread of her not quite trusting Mara fully still... It continues nicely. Continues here. <laughs> like, I think both her and Han are much more comfortable. Like, they're not, they're not worried Mara's about to stab them, or Luke especially, in the back. <laughs> but they still don't fully trust her motives in a broader sense. And I, I think that's fair. Yeah. Moff Andre says that Paleon must be joking, while Moff Bimo says the Empire does not surrender, and Paleon replies, then the Empire dies. Two of the Moffs get up to leave, but Moff Disra tells them to sit down, and they sit. Disra is the ruler of Bastion, which is now the Imperial Capital Planet. Paleon says with a treaty, they can at least hold on to what territory they have. Without one, they will be destroyed. Some Moffs argue the New Republic will destroy itself, and Paleon says that it may. But it will take decades, and they'll take care of the Empire long before that happens. After a lengthy debate, the Moffs reluctantly agree with Paleon. So, 
In two weeks, he'll go to Morisham to surrender to General Garm Bellablis. After this meeting, Paleon goes to see Disra privately. Disra introduces Paleon to his aide, Major Groden Tierce. What a first name. Man, that first name. Groden. Grody. <laughs> Paleon asks Disra where he's getting the Praybirds from. Disra doesn't want to say, but is forced to give up names to Paleon. Paleon will have intelligence examine the investor list immediately because he doesn't trust Disra. After Paleon leaves, Disra asks for Tierce's impression of the meeting. And he says he's just a fleet adjutant. He doesn't know anything about political things. Disra then asks him about Paleon's strategy, and Tears says the Admiral must know best. You know, he's the Admiral, he's in charge, of course he knows best. And this is starting to become a weird conversation. You're like, why, why is Disra Moff asking a lowly major about this? And Disra then says something really fascinating. You disappoint me, Major. I would have assumed the Emperor would have insisted on only the best, only the best to serve in his royal guard. Disra knows who Tierce really is. He is a former member of Palpatine's royal guard. So Tierce gives up the charade and straightens up, and in reaction, Disra leans back in his chair as if trying to escape Tierce. <laughs> if you have seen the original Superman movies, well, not original, but the Christopher Reeve Superman movies from the 70s, there's a great moment where Clark Kent is wearing his glasses, he's kind of hunched over, and it's clearly Clark Kent. And then he kind of takes his glasses off and straightens up, and it's clearly Superman. It is one of my very favorite moments from any superhero movie ever in terms of acting. Like, it's just, it's so perfect how clearly different these two characters are. And that is the scene that always flashes in my mind when Tierce does this. Mm. He's kind of very low on the totem pole. He's not important. He's keeping to himself. And then once it's known who he is, he, he transforms into who he really is. I thought that Dizra was just kind of a weenie in this scene. Well, that too. That's my contribution. <laughs> It's like, if you knew who he really was, why are you so surprised that he has this changed physicality? But, you know, my opinion of Disra never does really improve, so. That's fair. <laughs> the Tyrus who'd served as his aide for eight months was gone. A warrior was in his place. And Tyrus asks how he was identified, and Disra says he has access to duplicates of Palpatine's private records here on Bastion. He asks how Tyrus escaped the second Death Star's destruction, Tears says he wasn't there. They were all regularly rotated out to stormtrooper units to keep in fighting shape. That probably didn't keep you in great fighting shape. No, but I, I actually like this idea of like, you know, when you're in the Emperor, you're usually not in battle. So putting them into battle on a regular rotation, I actually like that idea a lot. Yeah. Later, he served with Thrawn. His unit was the one that found and killed Rook, but that was a small consolation. Disra asks if Thrawn knew about Tears, and Tears doesn't know. Thrawn never said. Thrawn definitely knew. Oh, he knew. He just was waiting for... When did he best use the information? Yeah. Disra then asks about Paleon's treaty. And Tyr still says, you know, Paleon is right. The numbers are against them. Disra then shows Tyrus the, the Lockjeet report. And Tyr says, it's still not enough. Disra says it is. It can bring the rebels down. And Tyr's is like, no, no, no. You don't understand. The rebels aren't the issue. The state of the empire is. We are too small and we are too weak. We need a leader to rally around, and then we've got maybe a slight chance. And we're still outgunned and outmanned. Disra asks, if he can provide a leader, will Tyrus join him? And if he does, the three will share the secret. Tyrus wants to be told more, and Disra says he'll show him instead. They go to the torture chamber <laughs> downstairs. It's the most secure room that Disra has. The third individual waits for them there. Tears walks in, freezes, and his eyes widen in shock. 
And he says, Grand Admiral Thrawn, sir. Stormtrooper TR-889 reporting for duty. Thrawn, air quotes, then says, Welcome back to duty, Stormtrooper. However, I'm afraid I must tell you that I'm not who you think I am. And Tears is kind of confused. He's like, what? And Disra says then, This is Flim, a highly talented Karn artist. It took Disra eight years to find someone who could do this so convincingly. And this has fooled Tears completely. Yeah. Admittedly, he was only in the room for like 10 seconds before they reveal it to him. They could have test, they could have done a longer test run with Tears. Tears realizes what Disra wants to do, but says, One problem. Everyone knows Thrawn is dead. Disra says, If they present him, wishful thinking will take care of the rest. And I, that is true. Tears asks about resources. Disra says he's working with the Cavriel Hugh Pirates, led by Captain Zothip. Disra pays the pirates in personnel by giving them clones. Thrawn had nests of those spread all over, apparently. Disra has Thrawn's records, which included the next five years against the Rebellion planned out. He offers to let Tyrus look through them, and Tyrus decides that he is in. Flem will be the figurehead, Disra will make the political decisions, and Tyrus will make the military ones. Meanwhile... Hold on. You're going to move on from that already? (laughs) (laughs) Something to say? Yes. I hate that they... I hate that Zahn revealed the truth to us. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. (laughs) Like, I'm so mad about it that I'm still throwing the tantrum (laughs) weeks later. It makes me so mad. Multiple times I said to you over and over again while reading these two books, but I wanted to also be conned. Like, I wanted to be tricked. (laughs) I didn't want to know from the beginning that it wasn't Thrawn. Because... Like, logically, most readers would go through this if it's not revealed to them, and they would think, 99%, this cannot be Thrawn. We saw him die. Like, Paleon is convinced that he's dead. Everybody's convinced that he's dead. But you would have that, that little bit. 1% sliver of doubt, and you would start your mind would start grinding, and the gears would start going, and you would start thinking, like, but Thrawn always had backup plans. But Thrawn always had something else up his sleeve. What if... What if there was a clone? What if there was like a transfer of his consciousness into like a freaking Bomar monk brain spider thing, and then it transferred back into a maybe new the body? Maybe did something. They figured the attachment process. Yeah, like maybe this is a chiss thing. Maybe he had multiple hearts. I don't know. Like you would the whole series, you would be thinking, but maybe it really is him, and you would you would be looking for clues that it is or it isn't. It would be so fun. And I was robbed of all of that. I was robbed of the fun of wondering. I'm sorry. Timothy! (laughs) Why would you do this? And you know what? Like my, my thought, I have upset our dog with my screeching so much. She keeps like rustling around under her blanket. Like mother, why? Why are you upset? The reason I think he did this is because in Star Wars, there are too many like Palpatine wasn't really dead. So-and-so wasn't really dead. Like, we found a way to bring them back to life, etc. And Zahn was like, I don't want to be lumped in with those people. I don't want the reader to think that I have gone to the dark side and I'm just, like, revitalizing people willy-nilly. So I'm going to bring the reader in on the trick. And not just that. I think he also wanted just to tell a different story than those. Yeah. But we don't know everything. I know we don't know everything at this point. But like the truth, like the truth is, Flim is Flim. Yes. Like 
I would have laughed so hard if Flynn was actually Thrawn. <laughs> that would have been a twist. If Flynn was tricking... If yeah. Thrawn was tricking Disra into thinking that he's Flynn pretending to be Thrawn. Yeah. I will admit that at some point I was so mad about this that I was kind of thinking along those lines. Like, what if this too is a convoluted chess game by Thrawn somehow? Like, maybe not that Flynn is Thrawn, but that Thrawn is puppeteering Flim from a distance. Like, oh my God. I just, this is part of my whole, I don't like to see a lot from the baddies thing. I, and it's, it, it really is probably largely a, like 99% a subjective personal preference thing. I like to experience the story from the protagonist's point of view, having their limited information about everything that is happening. I want to be surprised. I want to be titillated. Like, uh, I was, yeah, I'm so upset. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm going to try and get past this so that we can move on. But that's (laughs) my, my constructive critique. (laughs) And that's something that will inform the rest of the series for you. Yep. And always will. Like, even I reread, that's not going to change. It's not. Like, the Diamalian Ashori, you'll understand it like more sense than a reread. Yeah. So that won't be like, but Flim being Flim will always be a bother. It hurts me so much. Like, (laughs) I understand wanting to tell a different story for sure. And I like, like, aside from the fact that it's revealed to us so early, I would have even taken it's revealed to the reader before it's revealed to. The all yeah but i wanted to be strung along i know this sounds like i am a crazy person it who does. likes to be lied to it does in fiction that is what i want i want to be lied to like i wanted to be told a story like isn't storytelling just lying it's just making stuff up yes <laughs> i like the idea like for whatever reason this is disra's last flash of brilliance because he is kind of just an idiot for the rest of the time but it's an interesting idea to like try and trick everybody and basically through their fear of Thrawn which we will see they just fall all over themselves ruining everything for themselves (laughs) for a while which is delightful I just I just didn't want to know I didn't want to know so early I know I would have accepted even just learning it at the end of Spectre of the Past somewhere around there before everybody else and then you have the delightful tension of like now you the reader know and you can see everybody making these decisions based on faulty information and it's kind of torturous but you don't have to have that for like what is it like 1200 pages give or take and that's agonizing that's too much all right i'm gonna (laughs) get off my soapbox now meanwhile on the other side of the galaxy on coruscant sorry one more thing oh my prediction at this point in my notes was when Paleon discovers this deception, he is going to tell the New Republic. <laughs> that was my that was my notes myself. Anyway. Borsk looks up and says, So it has finally come to light. And Leia wants an explanation because she, she's like, You knew? And he says, Yes, it's true. But while the Bothans were involved in the destruction of Kamas, they do not know who did it. They don't even know the clans involved. And this is why they have never said anything. All they know is a group of Bothans helped then Senator Palpatine to get access to Kamasa's shield generators. The clan leaders learned of it in the early days of the rebellion. They tried to find out the identities, but Palpatine hid the knowledge too well. 
The shock of learning this is what made them so dedicated to the rebellion and to Palpatine's downfall. Leia says they have to find out the truth. Maybe the text can get more off of the data card, or maybe another copy exists somewhere. Borsk thanks Leia and says he's going to prepare his defense. And she says that he's not on trial. But Borsk says he will be, as will the entire Bothan race. And he's right. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason why the Bothans have never said something. But also, this is one of the things that didn't work as well for you either. Yeah. Sorry, I feel like we're really front-loading all of the things that didn't work for me. It'll become clearer later, I guess, but I didn't... This sounds very callous. I didn't understand why everybody cared so freaking much about Kamas, like the one planet. I understand that... So the Kamasi are very... They're like Alderanians. They're mm-hmm. very peaceful. They're non-combatants. They, The timing of the destruction of their world was... I believe, like, right after the Clone Wars were over. Right. And again, this is when the Clone Wars... In this Wars version of canon? 40 years ago rather than 20 or 30 years ago. And so it came as this horrible shock. Like, they thought um, everything... Like, the tragedy of the Clone Wars was over. There would be no more terrible things like that. And then, boom, this wonderful plan's destroyed somehow. And no one knew who did it. It was always suspected Palpatine had a hand in it. But no one had ever had any proof. Until now. But... A couple of things just don't work for me. The big one is that the Empire destroyed many planets. But the this Empire is before did, the Empire. I, I know, but like, you know, name whatever government, whatever you want to, things that Palpatine may or may not have been behind. Many planets were destroyed. They were. In the Clone Wars, in the Intermediary, and by the Empire. Well, I, I think in the Intermediary, this was the only big one that was in between the Clone Wars and the Empire. That's the impression I got. I just don't buy that. Lots of planets suffer from a government moving in and like strip mining. You know, like things that technically aren't slavery, but... Well, I think part of it was thinking about our world. Like, If we react much more strongly to something being truly and actually destroyed rather than something coming in and like a strip mining happening and just ruining a place, we tend to have a much stronger reaction to one and then the other. For better and for worse. For better or for worse. I mean, sure. But the other part on a more meta level that this did not work for me is I don't know very much about Kamas. Like, we heard about it in iJedi, I think the most. Yep. So, like we said back in... Because Stackpole is one of the few authors that Zahn will talk to, yep. apparently. <laughs> well, like, like we talked about when we did iJedi, Stackpole and Zahn talked together. And in that episode, we were talking specifically about Mara because I was hiding this. As to you were it. concealing things yes. from me, of um, course. There were a lot more. See, I like to be lied to. Than just <laughs> Mara, they were talking about the Kamas was the, was the big thing. Yeah, the other big thing that they talked about, and so Stackpole made sure to bring it up. And Corrin, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> and also this was brought up in the original Thrawn trilogy, though not in great depth or detail, mm-hmm. but. But I do, I do agree. It would have been better if other EU books could have referenced this. Yes. But because things were written so siloed in the 90s. I know. They weren't. I mean, it's just a failure of this this kind of, like, Wild West storytelling. It's know? also a failure of, not, not of that kind of story, but also just, like, the technology of the era. It was not as easy as it is today to share information. Sure. And people were also less interested in that kind of thing than they are today. Like, think of the higher public when the authors are constantly talking to each other just all the time. Yeah. That did not happen in the 90s. I wish it did. 
it would make the like i love that i mean i don't EU. think zahn's talking to any of the other disney authors there but you know but he's the exception to that but i know I, I, special snowflake <laughs> i do wish 90s eu had they talked more and i think 90s eu would have been stronger for it yeah because like the books are the most besides the zone books like the rogues and wraiths because both stackpole and alston weave together information from other books so well i just think because they weren't able to set this up adequately i would have preferred a different linchpin for everything that is about to happen i would have preferred that like maybe current bothans perhaps hired as privateers by the empire of today had just done something bad the other the other thing that doesn't work for me is that i don't understand palpatine's reason like i wish they had gone a little bit more into like why was kamas a target in the first place like what was the purpose and i don't think we ever hear that specifically in these books i don't think we do because again, like I, I feel like probably the reasoning is it's kind of like an Alderan, right? Like you do it to show that you can, yeah. to show that like nobody, no matter how much they set the conflict out, is safe from you to make everybody feel afraid. But that just wasn't like we've already had Alderon for that, and I've just pronounced Alderon two different ways mm-hmm. in the span of like thirty seconds. So cool. Thanks, George. Yeah, thanks, George. <laughs> but I just felt like we are so we already have an Alderon, so like we need a different reason for this Kamas thing, like something they had that Palpatine wanted. Um, if the Bothans had somehow been involved in Aldron's destruction, but that wouldn't work, of course. Yeah. So I just feel like on many layers, like both in universe and like from a meta textual level, it, it didn't for the rest of the series. I kept thinking to myself, like I, I don't understand why everybody's so upset about this. For me, it does work in universe, but from a meta perspective, I do agree. It it stumbles. Yeah. Meanwhile, Shada Ducal and Mazik are waiting to meet Kronkth. So close to Kronk. Yeah. <laughs> at, picture. at the Donna Laza Tap Cafe, Kronkth brings Lockjeet to them. He has valuable information to sell. He says he no longer has proof, but what he's about to say is true. Mazik says he'll pay if the information is good enough. Lockjeet says he has seen evidence that confirms Senator Palpatine destroyed Kamas. Mazik says, no duh. Yeah, again, that was, it was never confirmed Palpatine did this, but people just always assumed once the Empire was up and running, Palpatine was behind it because it's a Palpatine thing to do. Lockjeet then says the shield generators were sabotaged by Bothans, though he doesn't know their identities. Mazik puts the money on the table, and then as Lockjeet reaches for it, Shada knocks him out. Shada, should be pointed out, we have seen before back in the Hammer Tong short story episode. Mm-hmm. And Mazik we've seen before because he's one of Card's yes. various colleagues. He's yeah. not part of Card's organization. He's his so own we did, smuggler. We saw but... him in the original oh. Thrawn trilogy. Yeah. Lockcheat falls on the table and he's just another drunk passed out. A common sight here. They have captured him for Card. Mazik doesn't think anyone will care about a planet destroyed almost half a century ago, but Shada is shaken by what she's just heard. Disra is presenting a mission to four Star Destroyer captains. Three of them will head to the Bothawi system, and the fourth will go to Morishim to intercept an Imperial cruiser. They say that only Paleon can give them orders. Then Thrawn walks in. They fall under his spell and are ready to go. One of them, Nalgol, welcomes Thrawn back and shakes his hand. Flim says, a fine group of gentlemen. A bit gullible, perhaps, but fine gentlemen all the same. <laughs> Again, like, we could have seen the scene just without the... um after party i actually would be okay like if this was where it was revealed that Thrawn no. was Flim too, too soon, soon. All right. no thank you 
Disra asks Tyrus why he chose these four captains. One of them, Captain Dorja, knew the real Thrawn. So it seems risky. Tyrus says Flim would have to deal with people who knew Thrawn at some point, so they may as well get started now. Flim has Thrawn's magic about him. He just has that commanding presence that people hold under. Also, like, nobody knew Thrawn. Yeah. That is part of their... That's part what's of what's going for them here is that nobody truly like personally knew Thrawn. I think there are two people in the Empire who could spot him. Paleon. Paleon is one and the other is dead. And that's Rook. Yeah. Which is why they're keeping Paleon out of this. Well, yeah. one of the many reasons. Disra asks, what about when they leave? That magic is just it's no longer there. Tyr says that's why Captain Nalgol was included. He wears a poison injector ring, though it hasn't had poison in it for years. And Flim's like, excuse you? <laughs> what, one thing I do love about this is Flim reacting to all these things he doesn't know about or understand. Yeah. That is a lot of fun. It Does is Does it make fun. for not being conned? No. no. But it's amusing. It's very amusing. That's a... There's a moment later in Vision of the Future that's my favorite when he just throws a tantrum. It's a weak consolation prize. Tyr says Nalgol would have used the injector ring to extract DNA from their Thrawn. Tears also updated Thrawn's DNA records the previous day to match Flim's. I feel like there's a, just a glaring issue in this, in that anybody with any scientific expertise should be able to tell that the DNA for Flim as a human should not look at all similar to DNA for Thrawn. Well, that's the thing. No one knows anything about Thrawn or what he is. And I, I also wonder in Star Wars, if you are a humanoid species, how close is your DNA to, to each other? I guess. Like, the, if there are near, or the species that are close enough that can breed together, I would think their DNA is at least somewhat similar, right? I guess. I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> I love that Kanan and Hera are a thing. I don't understand how they produced a child <laughs> who looks human except for his green hair, question And mark. his ears are a little weird. Are they? They were in Rebels. There's a they're yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can't I can't do this. Okay. <laughs> Wedge and Wes run into Lando on Morishim. Lando is here to talk with Bella Bliss. Tycho shows up. He has a wizened Moorish with him who wants to talk to them. He says that the Bothans are responsible for the destruction of Kamas. He heard it from the old recluse. He lives in a cave and knows about events that are happening in the galaxy. Wedge asks how to find this old recluse because he wants to meet him. Lando decides to tag along. The four get to the old recluse and ask for the story in Kamas. And he says it will cost them 300 credits. But something is off to Lando. He kind of looks around and pulls a curtain aside and finds a fully functioning Imperial Communications Center. Lando says the dusty electrical smell is what gave it away. It reminded him of the Sparty Cylinders from Mount Tantus. Man, ten years later you can still smell those cylinders, huh? Longer than 10 years, maybe? Question no, it's, no, it's 10, 10 years. They have to leave fast. A Corvette just showed up in system and it's being chased by a Star Destroyer. Ruh-roh. The four of them are the closest and are going to try to slow the Star Destroyer down until help arrives. The Star Destroyer is firing at the Corvette and jamming its transmissions, and it eventually catches the Corvette in a tractor beam. However, Lando tries to break through the jamming and he manages to get a very garbled message. And as soon as the Corvette is pulled inside the Star Destroyer, it jumps away. And the garbled message is like half a word here, half a word there. There's enough where if you know what message it's trying to deliver, you you know what the message is. But if not, you have no idea. The message from Paleon about wanting to surrender. 
Paleon, meanwhile, is that Munalist, the financial core of the Empire. It's unofficially called Moneyland. <laughs> he meets with the Imperial officers stationed there and tells them about the peace treaty. Later, General Ramek asks if Paleon thinks the Republic will accept the peace treaty. He says we'll know soon. Colonel Vermel should be at Morrison by now. Tears hears from Dorja about the capture of the Corvette. Tears and Dizra are not happy about how sloppily it went. A few words may have gotten through, but only if a ship had the proper equipment, which they figure is unlikely. For now, they're going to lock Vermel up. Dizra is worried about the few words that could have been heard, but Tears isn't really worried. Bella Bliss listens to what Lando got and calls the recording as clear as roiled mud. <laughs> Wes thinks it's a theft or defection gone wrong, but Bella Bliss isn't so sure. The Empire can't afford to send Star Destroyers on that kind of mission anymore because, again, they have so few. They can clearly hear Bella Bliss's name and Vermel's as well. And they think, you know, isn't Vermel on Paleon's staff? Like, they've got some intel on what the Empire is like right now. For now, Bella Bliss will make copies of the, rec- of the recording and see what can be found out. The Grand Convocation Chamber of the New Republic Senate was completed about three months earlier. Gaverson has just told the Senate about the Bothan involvement at Kamas. And some senators instantly want to just punish all Bothans. Gavrishim says when they know the names, they will seek justice, not before. And some senators ask Borsk who the individuals are. And Borsk says the Bothans are ready to hand out justice themselves, but even they don't know any names. The senators keep shouting in anger, and and Gavrishim has to keep turning the microphones off to help calm things down. Leia is thankful she is temporarily not in charge. Because these are acting, they are acting like children. I have two notes. The president of the New Republic currently is a Rito. From Zelda. Interesting crossover. Yeah. I mean, he has some other distinguishing features that are not particularly Rito-ish, but like... That's what you pictured in your head? Yeah, that was instantly what I pictured. And I was this like, is who Han called Puffers. Yeah. I was ex- when Khan called him puffers. I don't know. I immediately went to like a puffer fish. Yeah, like, but he calls him puffers because he he speaks so much, like lots of hot yeah, air in yeah. that regard. But yeah, that's a fair. That's also I think where my mind jumps to as well. Whatever Khan calls him puffers, which I think is fine. It's just in like it's another species that we've. I don't think we've ever heard of. I don't think so either. Um, but I'm okay with like some new species, and like I feel like for I think this kind of thing. It, it works as we get to know this individual, not like incredibly well, but well enough. Yeah, that's fine. I think that's better than just two new species for a, an intergalactic conflict. Yeah. And then my other note is, I don't understand the New Republic hierarchy or political structure. I have a note on that in a second. But actually. okay. All right. The Senate has apparently been restructured. It now consists of about a thousand senators, each one representing 50 to 200 worlds. Boy, I hope those worlds are low in habitation. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Each senator can submit one bill per year at the committee level. It's voted on by the committee before it goes to the Senate. It's designed basically not to do a ton. Like, not a lot can happen at this level of government. It's purposefully... Weak? Yeah. <laughs> and more power has been given back to, like, the individual sectors through local politics. Less oversight, I guess. People wanted a weak central government after the Empire. So, one thing that's been really annoying in the EU in the 90s is that the Senate and power of the Republic has not been consistent from author to author. Just think of New Rebellion versus Black Fleet Crisis and the different ways in which Leia had to deal with issues of challenges to her power. They were completely 
different from the two, even though they took place next to each other in the timeline. Yep. So one thing I very much appreciate about the details that Zon just gave us is he's saying that things have actually changed several times over the course of the New Republic. Like This is not the first restructure of the government. This is a retcon of his just saying why it has been different every single time someone has put pen to paper. Yeah. And I, I very much appreciate that retcon. I think the only thing that I don't really... That doesn't really make sense to me is the idea that Leia can just like go on leave and have a replacement president for a while. Only because that's, I feel like to us, which like we're from the United States, that feels like such a foreign concept. Like a president wouldn't. It actually, it could happen. If. But uh, has it? I don't think it has. But like if, like, let's say a president had to undergo a major surgery, for example and was essentially incapacitated for a period of days or weeks, the the vice president would step in. So I can look at his Garrison. Oh, my Bush. impression is that if that happened, the American people would actually just rise up and kill them because it's just displaying too much weakness to have to have a major surgery. That's, that's how the system is designed. So if, <laughs> if the president is incapacitated for whatever reason, the vice president steps in. Okay. And I feel like the weird thing here is that we don't know Garrison and he's never... He's never been mentioned before. <laughs> right. But I kind of look at him as he was the, the VP, basically. But not because it's a, it's a different system than what we have, but that's the closest comparison to our system. I think the confusion is that's just not explicitly stated. Like, earlier in the book when we're talking about Gaffersome, this is not... Like, we're pretty far into the book at this point, and that hasn't really been hashed out. Like, we don't... Like, Leia is still there in yeah that, the that's what feels weird that she's still present and at least listening if and she's even adding her two cents at times yeah so i, I feel like if she's fully stepped back I, I think she's probably there and adding her two cents because she's the one who brought this before then yeah if she hadn't she probably wouldn't be present yeah it's just that we haven't seen a situation where she's not there yeah yeah so it feels weird agreed Senator Dixano approaches Leia after the session. He is an Ishori, and he asks to meet with her privately. She agrees. He brings some Kamasi with him to the meeting. Han is in Leia's inner office, and here's Leia and others outside it. Leia turns to the intercom so Han can listen in, and the Kamasi tell her that they are not interested in vengeance. It would serve no purpose. Only the rest of the galaxy would listen to them. Yeah. In the meantime, Card calls Leia's office, and Han picks up thinking that it's one of the kids, because who else would have the, like, direct personal number? Both men are surprised <laughs> to find the other one on the call. Card fills Han in on what's happened. He tells Han that Mazik caught Lockjeet, but the story has already spread. Han tells Card about the pirates and the clones, and Card assumes they are leftovers from Thrawn, but he's going to look into it. He asks cash or account, and Han asks, what will it take to bring Card fully over into the New Republic? No more games, no more payments, Just be on board. Card asks, well, what did it take for you? And Han makes a face and says, Leia. <laughs> and then this is one of my favorite things that's ever, ever said, I think, in this book. Card asks, does she have a sister? And Han says, he doesn't know of one. But with the Skywalker family tree, you never really quite know what you're going to find. Huge miss. He could have been like, no, but she has a brother. <laughs> Interested? <laughs> you know, Luke. Weird Jedi master guy. <laughs> Speaking of Luke, Card asks how he is. And Han says Luke is doing all right. And asks why Card is asking, because it's a little random. No, maybe he's interested. <laughs> Card says that Mara has been oddly rested lately. That she's been a bit touchy after seeing Leia. And thinks it's related to Luke, because Luke is always kind of a touchy subject with Lara. 
soon to be a very touchy subject. Oh my god. <laughs> Han says he had similar thoughts the last time Mara was brought up around Luke. Carter suggests getting the two of them together, and Han thinks that could work. It's been a while since the two talked. <laughs> I know you have thoughts about this. I just, I remember thinking to myself as I was reading this, like, is everyone now going to suddenly devolve into the kind of, like, romance subplot of, like, we gotta hook these two characters up, <laughs> we're so sick of the tension in the room with them, like, even when they're, you know, systems apart, they're somehow sucking all the air out of the room with their weird feelings about each other. I don't know, it was just funny to me, like... I looking back on it. So at the time, I really liked the scene, like while I was reading it through the first time. But looking back on it, I think it's the be the beginning of a thing that I didn't end up liking. It kind of feels like everyone in this series, like including outsiders like Han and Card, but also including Luke and Mara themselves, almost feel like it's a foregone conclusion. Like that there is only one pathway ahead of the two of them and it involves them like getting together. And to me at this point in the EU, that's not, that's not obvious to me. I agree, but I also don't blame that entirely on Zon. Other writers could have done more. That's true, but he also could have written these two books differently. He could have. To make it more palatable to me specifically. (laughs) So I feel like, I think there are three authors who at least did some work towards this. Mm-hmm. Stackpole and I Jedi. Surprisingly, Rush and New Rebellion. And also surprisingly, Anderson. I think it was in Darksaber. Mara shows up to the Academy and her and Luke go for like a yeah, weird that joy is, ride. That. I, I was actually going to say though, in the Corellian trilogy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's true. Just, you know. But, but for the most part, those are all more hints and possibilities rather than real progression yeah 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 that's my issue then again you can read the scene in a totally different way like i think i'm just reading it the way i'm reading it because i know what's coming next but you could read it in the way that like everybody thinks luke and mara are both really powerful and share a connection over something that is like most other people don't understand and so if they're not talking to each other and there's some issue there they should really be trying to get at the root of why that is. Yeah, and I think for Han, especially, like, he knows Luke has been out of sorts lately. Mm-hmm. Like, Han, Luke hasn't talked to Han about it, he's talked to Leia. Leia's probably talked to Han about it, saying that there is something bothering Luke. And when Mara came up, that also bothered Luke, so he thinks, you know... They're connected somehow. <laughs> not necessarily connected, but talking uh, to Mara about whatever's going on could help Luke. Like, it could just be he's trying to help his friend out, yeah, and not in a relationship sense setting him up, but just like... Right now, it feels like Mara's at least somehow involved with whatever's going on, and Luke being Luke, the way he deals with things is to talk and to talk and do things. So he should talk to Mara. And according to Card, Mara's also kind of out of sorts as well, and it probably involves Luke. So it makes sense that they're both like you know, get them just talking and doing something together because they they do work really well together. That we've seen consistently throughout the EU is whenever they're together. They do work well together. Yeah. Regardless of author, it's just we don't see enough of that. Yeah. I think the reason your mind jumps immediately to the romance subplot when the two of them are like, they should really talk, 
is because they were just talking about like, well, what did it take for Han to join the? I, I think that's Zahn trying to plant that hint. Yeah, but I remember as a child, I didn't think that. You didn't read it that way. No, because I didn't. I guess it's like Dagobah in the cave. You know, I'm seeing things reflected that I brought in with me. Yes, because <laughs> thing is, I didn't think Luke and Mara were going to get together. I didn't know that was going to happen when I was a kid when I first read this. I was God. very surprised Imagine. when it did. I'm not saying I wanted it to be Callista in the end, but I, I actually thought <laughs> that would a. I thought she would return to Luke someday. That was a viable option. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought that as a kid. Wow. What a concept. Because if you don't know what's coming... I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to think. Of, you know, if she's ever able to figure things out for herself, not to say with the force, but just like being comfortable with who and what she now is, maybe they could work someday. Yeah, I mean, he's a huge weirdo. She's a huge weirdo. Yeah. Anyway, we'll have a lot more to say about this, I think, later. But yep. for now, we should move on. <laughs> After the call ends, Leia comes in and says, "This could be the biggest threat the New Republic has ever faced." She sees a crisis point coming up. She's been feeling it since she saw Card and the data pad on Wayland. I'm not going to make a big thing out of this because I think we've talked about it already a lot. But first of all, I hate whenever a character says this could be the biggest threat we've ever faced because it feels like that happens literally every book. And I get pretty annoyed at the escalation. But also, second of all, at this point in the conflict, I'm still like, really? Everybody cares about this Kamasi document? Because I don't. <laughs> And that's just what I'm bringing to the table. Anyway, Captain Nalgol is at the Bothawee system and his Star Destroyer is cloaked. They are blind, but on the flip side, nobody can see them. Scout ships are sent out to make sure the other Star Destroyers are in position. He wonders why they, that is himself and the other Star Destroyers, are here. Like, he's not quite sure why they were sent here. Yeah. And he also wonders where Thrawn has been over the years while fools like Dala <laughs> bled the Empire dry and why Thrawn is now with Distra, of all people. The only thing he's sure of is that it was Thrawn. The genetic analysis confirmed it. All three Star Destroyers are behind the comet and tether themselves to it. And now they will wait. For what? We'll we, find out. We don't know. <laughs> Luke is in disguise and going by the name Mencio. He is working for Wesselman, he claims. He has a delivery to make to the Kavril through Pirates, which includes a couple of surprises, a set of hyperdrive boosters and an SB-20 security breach droid. The Pirates are in a hollowed-out asteroid, so he has to fly through an asteroid field to get to them. His X-Wing is safely tucked away inside the ship he's flying. He lands at the base and gets hassled. He's told they called Wesselman, and he has never heard of Mencio. Luke knows it's a bluff. The NRI has Wesselman right now, so they couldn't have called him. He calls the bluff, and he passes by knowing where Wesselman is supposed to be. Luke is told it will take a couple of hours to load the cargo. So, when he has a chance, when no one's looking, he quickly hides himself in the skeleton of the SB-20 security breach droid. He is initially being taken to the electronic shop, but then he's moved to the level 4 storeroom instead. Luke knows something has gone wrong. Luke is ordered to exit the container. The box was scanned, so uh, they spotted him. He sees five pirates with blasters pointed at him. He hands over his blaster, but is allowed to keep the spare power packs. He says he's here to talk to their captain about a deal and was ordered to test their security, and they pass. <laughs> but this bluff does not work, and a fight breaks out. The pirates quickly realize who Luke is as he pulls his lightsaber out, like an idiot. Luke manages to get away into a corridor. Just dodge, Luke. Just dodge with the force. But gravity suddenly reverses, and then it throws Luke sideways. 
Bars come out and just kind of pin him in place and his lightsaber far from him. A voice comes over the comm and says this was set up about five years ago in case a Jedi ever came by. Luke can turn his lightsaber on, but he cannot move it so he cannot cut itself free. Luke asks what they want, and the voice says for him to die. <laughs> Luke then hears gas and gets ready to do a Jedi technique to keep the poison from affecting him for a time. But he then realizes they aren't pumping poison in. They are pumping the air out. Rut row. He's like, uh-oh, Jedi have to breathe. Aaron Kraken had found a way to rig blaster power packs to explode, so using the two that he has, Luke manages to free his lightsaber and cut himself free. His comm beeps, and instead of R2 as he expects, Mara's calling him. And she asks if he's in trouble again, and Luke says, of course I am. Have you ever known me when I wasn't? And Mara replies, offhand, I can't think of a time. Stop flirting. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> or keep flirting. <laughs> or keep flirting. I don't know. Turn it up to 11, Zon. Yeah, like, turn it up and get it over with if you're going to do it. <laughs> I know that's the opposite of what I've been saying this whole time, but like they do have an incredible like chemistry, verbal chemistry, physical chemistry, etc. They've always been very like just witty with each other, and especially it, once like even when she wanted to kill him. Yeah, it was more difficult back when she wanted to kill him, but even then it existed. Yeah, oh, uh, it's very good. <laughs> Explosions start going off, and Mara asks if he's setting them off, but he says no. Mara then sees several ships running away. She says that R2 has gotten the X-Wing out of the ship that Luke came in on. He chased the pirates away by blasting the landing bay's atmosphere shield generators. Oops. R2 sends the path through the asteroids to Mara, but the pirates have scrambled it. So she sends the Starry Ice in anyway. She's like, we're going to go. We're going to rescue Luke. And she wishes she had the Jade's Fire, which is currently on Durin getting worked on. She tells Luke they are coming in, and this is his last chance to wave his hand and sweep away all the traps. She instantly feels guilty and knows that Luke is wincing from her remark, but then she's firing at asteroids and can't worry about it. Aw, she cares. She's being deliberately provocative. And, and then it's like, oh, I shouldn't do that to my boy. I don't think that's the thought. She can just sense that like <laughs> she cut deeper than she intended to, and she's like, oops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. The explosions are doing too much damage to the asteroid base, and the Star Guys can't get to Luke. So, he's got a plan. He'll blow the doors open and go into a hibernation trance and fly out to her. She'll have to grab him in space. Mara saying, welcome aboard, will wake Luke up from the trance. Isn't this just a great plan? I remember this. Re I remember <laughs> reading this and just sort of, like, clutching my face. Like, this is the best you've got? You're just gonna fling yourself into space? No, no. He's gonna fling himself into Mara's arms. Yes. Of course. <laughs> Luke is going too fast, so Mara has to catch him as he enters, not just with the force, but with her body. <laughs> she says, welcome aboard, as he hits her, and then, surprisingly, she doesn't get absolutely pancaked against a wall or anything. That's kind of like fall over him on top of her. So he says thank you into her ear, and oh, she... Oh, my God. <laughs> I gotta get through this bullet point, okay? You're embarrassing me. <laughs> She asks why he didn't just use the Force as a disguise in the base, and he says he's trying to cut back on the Force, except when necessary. She then asks if he wants to get off of her, or is he just getting comfortable? <laughs> so we're just kind of, like, laying on top of her while they're talking. I don't think he's laying on her. top of her, but yeah, he's on, like, hands and knees above her, having stopped her from slamming too hard. <laughs> Tom just winked at me three times in succession. I'm not going to get through this recording if he continues. 
but yeah, they're they're just like having this conversation in a very sort of compromising to, position. Yeah, like if some if one of her crew walked in right now, they would be like, they would just turn around, walk out, whistling. I didn't see nothing. Yeah, like don't kill me, Mara. I did not see it. What are you talking about? I saw nothing. It's like in Spaceballs. No, I did not see you playing with your toys again, sir. <laughs> so Luke gets up and he is able to get his X-wing, and he will help the Star Guys get out of the asteroid field. And Mara thinks it's a surprisingly easy trip out with Luke's help. And she's like, is he protecting me more than he should? Because, like, she has nothing to shoot at this entire trip. Yeah, she she feels like he's being simultaneously overprotective and kind of a (laughs) show-off. That's what happens when they get together. Then they see a strange ship. At first they think it's a TIE fighter of some kind, but it doesn't have the side solar panels. And Luke has never seen one like it before. Luke flies close to investigate, but it runs away. Luke shares what data he got from it before it left. He thanks Mara, and they part ways for now. Dang it. Sad. Someone on Mara's crew comments that she and Skywalker make a pretty good team, and she mutters to herself, like, shut your mouth or something. (laughs) People ship it. Yeah. I mean, who on board that ship could possibly not ship it (laughs) after what just happened? Mara's like, the way to get into the base is scrambled. Oh, well, we're going to go save Luke's butt anyway. And then his butt's in my face. And, like, Mara never does anything in front of these people that's not for, like, profit, you know? Like, she probably does her card, and that'd be about it. They do have a discussion about what what he's going to pay. And that's the data he got from the ship. And (sighs) speaking of said ship, do you remember what you thought at this moment? So we have more discussions about this later in the questions, but at this moment, do you remember what you thought it might have been? Just an Imperial ship? Because it looked like a tie? I forget. Did I tell you while I was reading what I thought it was? Okay. I think at this point, I wasn't sure. Okay. Maybe like a new kind of tie defender since it does go to hyperspace? I mean, whoever it was, I basically just thought it's someone who has a vested interest in either what Mara and Luke are doing or what the pirates are doing or both. And I thought that that could be Disra because he's connected to the pirates. Mm -hmm. But since we see so much from their perspective, it was hard for me to justify that. Like, I don't know. Zahn's kind of giving it all away in the baddie sections. I thought we would have heard about it if he was sending somebody to spy on the pirates. Maybe we'll have Paleon scouts, because he sends scouts out. Yeah, maybe. I didn't, didn't, like, rack my brain trying to figure it out at this moment. That's what I know for sure. (laughs) On Dordalum, there was a fiery speaker at the stand of public expression. It's just across from the Bothan-owned Sulphurin Shipping Company. Drend Navit thinks it's a good day for a riot. He waits for the right moment and then shouts justice for Kamas and throws a fruit at the Bothan building. Others planted in the crowd follow suit, and Navit then starts throwing stones and others follow his lead. Authorities are quick to respond, but Navit and the rest of the agitators quickly fade away. But before he goes, Navit throws a Bith-made grenade at the building. Dun-dun. Caversum calls Leia and Borsk to a private meeting and shows them a petition that other planets have put together. Borsk calls it a sentence of ruin for the Bothan people. They can't afford to find a planet for the Kamas refugees and then reform it to original Kamas specifications. Gaverson has seen the numbers. He knows it'll be tight, but the Bothans could afford this, he thinks. Borsk says those assets don't exist. They were supposed to be a temporary deception, but they've had difficulties finding investors and contractors right now. The Bothans will recover, but it will take time, so basically they are secretly broke and lying to everybody about it. How very Bothan of them. Yeah. Leia says, per Crypt Chief Ghent, and I love that 
Gens is their crypt chief now. <laughs> They've gotten everything they can for the Pet that they could. But they are looking through old Imperial archives at Comparas, Budelais, and Obersky to see if any other copy of it exists, but no luck yet. Leia asks how long till the Bothans are back on their feet. Borsk says they'll be out of their major debt in about three months, but far longer to get where they say they currently are. Gaverson asks how long till they could do this kind of project, and Borsk says maybe ten years, but maybe never. So in this petition, they need to find a planet for the Kamasi people, and then to change the planet to match their specifications. Terraform, basically. Yeah, thank you. So I'm like, you know what? Drop the second part. Just do the first part. The first part actually, I think, is doable. It doesn't have to be the exact same, and I don't think the Kamasi people care if it's the exact same or not. But all the petitioners care. Yeah. Gaverson wants the Bothan finances examined and asks Slay to do it. He also tells Borsk to not give any advance warning to the combined clan leaders that Leia is on her way. Dizra thinks that this plan is going well. Flim says it's going slow. Tears says patience is a virtue, especially for soldiers. Flim says that's the problem. He's a con artist, not a soldier. He asks when they'll get a chance to go into action again, and Tears says soon he will play to the rebels. Ooh. Records at Bastion and Yaga Minor could hold the truth, so Tears will go to Yaga Minor to edit the Kamas document there. The general in charge there knows Pelion well, and it will look suspicious if Disra goes given what he has access to at Bastion. Tears asks Disra for a copy of his decryption method, and Disra says this is the second time that Tears has asked for it and wants to know what Tears is really looking for. Tears says he isn't sure. Palpatine had a lot of secrets. Who knows what will be useful now? So he basically is just saying, I want to just get into the secrets of what's available and what I can find. Just want to look at everything. He's, of course, still hiding things. They are interrupted by Captain Zothip calling Disra. The other two get out of eyesight while Disra answers. He says he lost his base to Skywalker and wants to know why he was there. Disra asks, what does it have to do with him? Zothip says the clones were pulled and then Skywalker shows up. He says Disra may have pointed Luke at them. Disra says he didn't. It's possible Luke figured it out from the earlier pirate attack. It was fought off by an X-Wing and a YT-1300. Luke could have been present. Surprisingly smart of Disra to say that. Yeah. Disra says he's at the job for the pirates. In three weeks, Pelion will be leaving Imperial space. He wants the pirates to attack Pelion, but don't do any serious damage to put him under fire. And Zothop asks why. Disra says, don't ask why. I'm just going to pay twice the usual fee. Just make sure they use ships that have a Corellian insignia on them. Pelion cannot know this is a pirate attack. The wild card comes out of hyperspace and a Star Destroyer is dead ahead. It's the Errant Venture booster ship. Hasishi, a Tagorian, is new to the wild card, and she was surprised by the Star Destroyer, but recovered quickly, impressing Card and the other crew members. She has kind of long claws, and there's uh, some claw marks in her console where she was sitting. I think she's like she's like a Khajiit. Like, the Togorians look like Khajiit from Skyrim. Sorry. Never played Skyrim. <laughs> we, of course, first see this species in the Hantola trilogy, the Paradise Snare. Oh, yeah. Han's cat friend. Surprisingly, on the air adventure is one Noara Ven. Were you surprised to see him? Yeah, I was like, what are you doing here? He welcomes them. Apparently, he and I worked for Booster. Bizarre. Merrick and Korn are here, too, and they are also visiting Booster. And we also get to meet Valen, Korn and Merrick's son, who we, of course, heard was going to happen back in iJedi, but this is the first time we've seen this child since they talked about having him. Mm-hmm. It makes you wonder, if Zach had the chance, we'd have written more books between the then and now, and we could have seen that. I'm sure. I mean, based on what he said on Twitter pretty recently, like, 
He's just waiting for somebody to invite him to the party, you know? <laughs> yeah. Corrin asks how Mara's doing, and Karth says, well, and that she'll actually be here soon. Corrin is here to meet with Booster and doesn't want Card to know why. Card gives Mirax a small gift for Valen, saying it's proper etiquette for a guest to bring something for the host's children. Corrin asks how Card knew they'd be here, and Card says, my information sources are quite good. Basically, Card is showing off to prove that he can be useful so that he can know what Corrin's here for so that he can sell information to somebody. He's good at his job. Corrin is impressed, in fact, and we'll see if Card can be useful. He says the New Republic has started hearing about a group called Vengeance among the protesters and rioters. Card says his people will check their files and sources for any information on it. Card then tells the group about the clones Luke felt. And Corrin says it's been years since the military ran, ac- ran across a clone in a fight. Booster asks why Dala or someone else didn't use them. Card guesses they were in deep cover so no one could use them. Booster asks what they're being saved for and Corrin asks why are they being used now? The Starry Ice shows up in system and Mara joins in on the comm, but then another ship shows up. Mara says it looks like a modified tie. It flies straight at the bridge. The shields aren't coming up in time. and The Air Adventure is not in great shape. It needs a major overhaul. Yeah, they are lacking a lot of... Uh, they're running a skeleton crew, and it's a big ship, and all the parts are bad. <laughs> At the last moment, the TIE-like ship avoids a collision and jumps to light speed. Mara says it was the same type of ship that she and Luke saw. After analyzing the sensor data, they confirm that it's actually the exact same ship. This was actually kind of a frightening scene, because I feel like no one on this bridge has true plot armor the way of, like, let's say, Han, Luke, or Leia were here. Yeah, so at one point you have Mirax running with Valen out of the bridge yeah. because they're afraid a collision's going to happen. Cards considering very calmly to himself if he has time to like drop down into the crew pits. And he's always like, that wouldn't even do anything. Being like, well, he just stands there. Yeah, he's just like, this is interesting. And like Booster and Corner trying to help each other. Yeah. And... <laughs> it's all stressful on that bridge. Yeah. The ship sends a transmission, but no one can understand it. And Booster thinks it's useless, like the Kella ship. Which, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> what a pull. What a pull. After analyzing the signal carefully, though, Thrawn's name can be heard on it. Boucher says that's the, that the name sounds broken up. Like, it's not like Thrawn. Is there something else to it? And Mara says that's because they're hearing his full name for the first time ever. Mithra Nuado. I'm sure I pronounced it terribly. I think you did a pretty good job. I think the, the hard part is the last section after the second apostrophe. Nuorodo. Yeah. Nithron Nuorodo. It's so hard to say. It's just Thrawn. But so th- this is the first book we ever hear his full name. Wow. Which is... History. I don't think people actually ever realize that, like I said earlier. Like, th- this book and series adds so much to Thrawn's history and legacy that people don't realize. Even though he's not here. Yeah. Which is impressive in that, re- in that way, I feel like. Card asks if she knows anything about Thrawn's early history. Mara says she really only knows the basics. She doesn't even know why he was exiled. Maybe the ship is looking for him and they don't know that he was killed ten years ago. Corrin says, or it's looking for something else, and tells them about the Hand of Thrawn data card that Leia found. Mara says Thrawn wasn't the type to have a shadow agent. He wasn't into the same kind of political manipulation that Palpatine was. And I also think this is the first time where it's really talked about how bad Thrawn is at politics. Like, that wasn't a major point of the... Uh, and it's religion. not even like he's bad at politics. It's like he's he just, just not doesn't Palpatine bother level. with them. And that becomes such a major part of his characterization going forward. Mara says that whoever is in the ship could also be the Hand of Thrawn. Based on the two vectors they now have from the ship, 
There is an intercept point. It is an unexplored system in between wild space and the unknown regions. It's listed as the Noiran system, but there is no other data available about it. Corin says Bellabliss is unlikely to be able to send any ships there right now, so Mara decides that she will go in the starry ice. Card asks Corin if he sensed anything on the ship. He says something alien. Corin says his abilities aren't widely known about, so keep your voice down. <laughs> Card says Corin's secret is safe with him. He'll just owe Card something. For Mirax's sake, it will be something safe or incredibly vital. One or the other. It's <laughs> nice of Card. I, I like that he and Mirax are close. and he, Yeah. Yeah. Mazik and Griv are meeting with a Kubaz who represents a hut cartel. Shada is scaling a wall so she can help if needed. She is from the planet Emberlene, and like Kamas, it was destroyed long ago, but no one cared when it happened, and today, no one cares either. Karoli Doolin is on the roof above her. She asks for Shada's blaster, then invites her up. It's been nearly 20 years since they last saw each other, during the Hammertong project. So this is, of course, referencing the short, short story, story of Tales from the Most Sister Cantina that we read a couple of years ago now, I guess. Yeah. The Mistral are pulling Shada off of Mazik. His organization hasn't grown like they thought it might when she was first assigned to him, and she has to leave right now. And Shada replies, why? Because your new client wants to murder him? Like, she's like, no, I'm staying here. Shada had climbed with a safety line and now jumps off the roof and swings around. She grabs a bird <laughs> and an egg that she saw on the way up, and she throws the bird at Karoli to distract her, and then the egg to momentarily blind her. <laughs> they fight, and Shada knocks Karoli out. She then takes out a sniper elsewhere on the roof and watches the meeting. It goes fine, and the Kubaz is surprised by the lack of surprise at its end. Shaw then lets herself be seen and points the sniper at the Kubaz. She's still going to resign. She needs to go into hiding now. Because she's like, the Mistral is going to come after me. Yeah, so basically her organization from Emberlane, the Mistral, planted her with Mazik a long time ago. And now Karoli is here saying the Mistral want you off of this job. like. They're done with this guy. He's not important. And Shada's like, no. <laughs> it's my job. I'm, gonna keep, keep I'm, him safe. I'm not going to let you kill him. Like, <laughs> But she knows that like they'll find her again if she stays with him. So she is going to resign. Yeah. And hopefully he's okay since this meeting is now over. After Luke has gotten medical attention, he's unsure of how to proceed and decides to meditate on what to do next. And he's given a vision of the universe. <laughs> he sees Wedge and the rogues, then his students leaving Yavin 4. He sees himself on a balcony against the wall of a darkened canyon. He sees Han and Leia facing a mob. And then the vision ends with Mara floating in a water surrounded by rocks with her eyes closed, her arms and legs limp, as if in death. The vision fades and several hours have passed. Dun-dun. Concerned? No. Because you knew it was coming. Yeah. I was concerned. <laughs> I was like, are they, is Mara going to die? <laughs> I mean... I was cons let's put it this way. I was concerned about what Luke might do if Mara died. Because he is Anakin Skywalker's and son. And we will actually get a glimpse of that later yeah. on. Yeah, much later. But, you know. He asks R2 to look for a world with a wide, deep canyon that has buildings built into the sides and a lot of lights at the bottom. R2 pulls up several and Luke looks through the images, eventually deciding that Kajansuj is what he saw. The Canyonade is the one place he saw himself in the visions and felt peace in, so he's going to go there first. It's like, yeah, Han, Leia, the rogues, my students, they can all take care of each other. Worried about Mara, but don't know where that is, so let's go where I felt Last time good. I saw her, she was fine and not near rocks or water. So. Last time I saw her, I was on top of her. <laughs> not awkward. <laughs> 
Siak Orusia. I'm sure I pronounced that terribly. Zon, enough of the apostrophes. Oh my god. He loves an apostrophe. And like, this is not a chiss. I no. can forgive it for a chiss, but for non-chiss, stop it. Even one of the pirates, which we didn't talk about in that section, but even one of the pirates had an apostrophe in the middle of their name. Or that Senator Dixano has an apostrophe. Yeah. Stop it, Zon. Please. Timothy, calm down. <laughs> the first secretary of the combined Bothan clans seems surprised by Leia's visit. Or Leia thinks he seems surprised, at least. She's never been great at reading Bothans. <laughs> Unfortunate. She has letters from Gaversum and Borsk saying why she's here. And he says the leaders have to be present to show data, but they are currently off-planet. Leia says that Borsk could look, and so could his possessions, which include droids. And Siak's like, yes, this is true. So then she shows him the seal of ownership for C-3PO, who is with her, of course. He's not happy about being sold, even though the sale is only on file and not genuine. But the deceit makes it even worse to 3PO. Of course it does. I feel so bad for 3PO in this series. He's just handed off. Hot potato. I mean, why would you want him? So the Bothan escorts them to a computer terminal. Novit is impressed by the size of the crowd that they've gathered. Cliff has outdone himself. Han and Leia hear the crowd from inside the building, and Han goes to check it out. It's worse than he feared. It's huge, filling the entire street. He sees a Bothan trying to calm the crowd down on a balcony lower down from him and decides to head back to Leia. Navit sees Han, just up on the balcony. How can you not see the beautiful Harrison Ford? <laughs> Before Han gets back, Leia is asked to help defend the Bothans. So she goes out with 3PO. As she gets outside, she hears a blaster shot. Han hears the shot and pulls out his blaster. Then there's a second shot and two in the crowd are down. Someone points at Han and says he did it, and the rest of the crowd quickly joins in. Right row. Oops. They throw open the doors, and Leia pulls out her lightsaber, and the mob slows down for a moment because, you know, giant laser cutting sword. They don't want to deal with that. But the Bothan guards behind her open fire, and it all goes straight to chaotic hell. Leia jumps above the crowd and sees Han and two of the Nogri, and she manages to collapse the staircase and climb away. They're having a fun time, aren't they? Yep. This is, of course, the riot that Luke's Luke on his saw. vision. Yeah. Leon hears about the riot in Bothawi, and he wonders if he's wrong, if the New Republic is on the verge of destroying itself right now. But then he gets an idea. What if he helped the New Republic resolve the situation? He can't go to Bash for the, the Kamas file, but he'll, go, he'll be at Yaga Minor soon enough. He'll get the complete Kamas document from there and offer to get more political concessions. Smart plan. However, he's still waiting here from Vermal to see if the meeting is on or not. 27 rioters are dead. Another 40 are wounded. Most reports are blaming Han. 3PO is in pieces, but can be repaired. Barkhemk, a Nogri, shows Han a redirection crystal and blast tube. A sharpshooter fires into the crystal, which redirects the energy into the tube. It's designed to make it look like Han was the one who fired. It's Imperial tech, meaning Imperial agents were definitely part of the riot. ruh -ro. Dun-dun. The Star Ice makes it to the Nuaran system. The second planet looks habitable, and they see a ship heading towards it, in fact. So, Mara will take in a lone fighter to investigate. She gets to the planet and flies through a deep ravine. She sees holes in the walls of the ravine and is unsure if wildlife made them or if they're hiding sensor arrays. And this actually kind of makes me think of the ravine that they flew back in Rogue Squadron when they were um, mm. uh, Borlaeus, when mm -hmm. they took that planet. She sees what could be the entrance to a base, a cave, and decides to go the rest of the way on foot to investigate. She gathers her things, including her lightsaber. Luke and her used to be allies. Now she isn't so sure what they are. She's thinking about him. Complicated. 
They're either about to kill each other or fall in love. Or the it's other. a fine line between those two things. Kill in, each other or fall in love. In fiction, yes. Does that mean that we are always on the verge of killing each other? I said in fiction, not in real life. Okay. But maybe. I don't think we no. are. We're normal people. <laughs> We're not forced users of great power. Yeah. As much as I want to be able to lift cups. I don't think I'd want to be... I don't think I'd want to have force powers. I want them. Get in bed, turn the light off from there, perhaps turn it off. Yeah, if you had force powers, though, you wouldn't be in ordinary situations such as needing to turn the light off when you get into bed. You'd be constantly running for your freaking life, never to know a moment's peace. <laughs> <laughs> Mara gets to the cave, and the ravine actually kind of curves around it. So before going in, she looks around the corner and sees the ravine end abruptly about 10 kilometers away. At the top of it is a giant fortress. It's built of black stone and has three towers and possibly another one that had collapsed. In fact, at the right angle, whatever took out that tower may have formed the ravine as well. Interesting. It's a powerful shot or whatever. Mara then hears an air vehicle somewhere in the ravine. Then something flies out of the cave. She aims at it, but a second shadow drops down and knocks her blaster away. She pulls her lightsaber out and the blade gets a reaction. She vaguely hears a voice and isn't sure if it's in the cave or in her head. So she reaches out with the force and is almost able to communicate with them. She mutters, where's Skywalker when you need him? And his name gets a bigger reaction from the creatures. Outside the cave, she sees a huge crowd of Minoc-like creatures moving her ship. Whoops. So that's a... We saw a Minoc in Empire Strikes Back. Not very big. So like a huge cloud of them would be. Yeah, you'd have to get a giant... So many of those things to move a ship. She jumps forward, stumbles, hits her head, and is knocked out. That's embarrassing, Mara. It really is. She wakes up three hours later and is even deeper in the cave than she was. She knows the Starry Eyes has left to get help. She had had a recorder and stops transmitting if she is silent for 15 minutes. And the, the rule was, if, I, if it cuts out, go and get help. So they're gone. She knows she can survive until Kara sends reinforcements. Meanwhile, Lando is looking to hire security for his latest venture and is told that it will cost him 50000 a month. With Coruscant being so hands-off, local issues are cropping up, which drives prices up for all of the labor. One of the issues of having a less centralized government. Yep. While on his way back to the Lady Luck, Lando sees a mob protesting the Bothans outside of Docking Bay 66, but he's like, there aren't any Bothans here. That's weird. Why are they protesting outside this Docking Bay? So he's about to call Spaceport Control, and asks who's in Docking Bay 66, but he's interrupted by a New Republic Sander named Perilla Miatamia, a Diamala, the other species we saw earlier. Yeah. They're the ones who are always at loggerheads with the Ishori. Yep. And he says it's his ship in Docking Bay 66. His government wants to forgive and forget, leading the mob to, you know, be mad at them. He asks Lando to intervene on his behalf, and Lando says that he has little influence these days, and the crowd won't listen to him. But... Lando could give the senator a lift out of here. He asks, the senator asks the cost, and Lando says he has an underwater mining operation that is dealing with pirate attacks. He'd like to hire the Diamala to help protect it. The senator agrees to a discussion, but can't promise more than that, which works for Lando, and they are able to get him away to safety. Tyrus and Desiree hear that the senator has left with Lando, and they've decided that they will send Flim to intercept and reveal Thrawn's presence. Desiree isn't a huge fan of this idea. <laughs> Who do you think is right here? Disra or Tearson Flem? Tearson Flem. Yeah? Yeah. Disra's playing it too... Too safe? Too safe. Paleon gets to Yaga Minor and talks with High General Hestiv. 
General Hestov thinks the, the New Republic will collapse over the Kamas issue, especially if the Empire does a little judicious pushing of its own, which is already happening. He doesn't know about it. They could use non-imperial equipment and resources. The New Republic wouldn't know it was them. But Paleon says it's not going to work. Eventually, the Republic would find out about their involvement and unite long enough to at least destroy the Empire. If the New Republic eventually self-destructs on its own, they will still be around to pick up the pieces if a peace treaty is signed. Hestiv reluctantly agrees, and Paleon will have his support. Paleon says he also wants to look up some information while he's here. He doesn't trust what he'd find at Bastion. Hestiv says no one gets into the records here without proper authorization, as Major Tierce recently found out. Paleon is surprised Tierce was here and says he works for Disra. He asks what the Major was looking for. Hestiv says he didn't get in, but Paleon is sure that he did. Hestiv will order a check to figure out if Tierce was able to access anything. Hestiv's search finds nothing. Paleon says Tierce must have looked at the special file section, which neither of them unfortunately have access to. This doesn't make sense to me. Someone who's in charge of, like, overseeing this base of information doesn't have access to the files? That makes sense to me. For the Empire? Paleon says the codes and procedures to access these files were lost long before he took over. That's the thing. The Empire's been in such disarray over the last decade. I guess, and they have no... <laughs> like... It's th- th- we have a friend who always makes remarks about the Empire's failure to have any kind of data redu- like anyone in Star Wars. There's no data redundancy. There are no backups. Their little like their little things that they clip onto their uniforms that act as like passcodes are very like that's a very weak version of a password. Like it's very hackable. <laughs> yeah, or like just you've been we both been adopted for about ten years now. Mm-hmm. If suddenly tomorrow one of us left, how much just knowledge and information would be lost by our presence not being there? Oh my god. <laughs> like, that's kind of like, and that's what happened to the Empire on a grand scale. Like, everyone in charge died, captured, ran away, and hid. So, like, so much information was just lost in that regard. And I think that's what Zahn is saying, essentially. By the time Paleon arrived, that information that he should have, long gone, like, Dala didn't, certainly didn't or have it. Or it's at least, like, misfiled. If that makes sense. Like, yeah. I don't know exactly where it is. Or how to find it. Yeah. Maybe it's probably a course on somewhere hidden. Yeah. In the Imperial Palace. Hestev will start looking for someone who has act- who can access those files. This was Paleon's last stop. He's now after Pesatine. But he tells not heard from Vermal and is getting worried and nervous. Luke and R2 are on the Grand Rim Promenade on Sajansage. They are being followed by an alien and that alien eventually approaches them. He is Motion Tree. Unyala of the Costa tribe of the Rolaran people of Ralnas Minor. He's a New Republic observer and directly reports to the High Council and Senate. Again, Zahn, enough of the apostrophes. Yeah, if you can believe it, I actually got through that line the first time without having to re-say anything, but man, I was sweating. <laughs> he watches especially for improper government activities by local or sector authorities. So, like, even though the New Republic is pulled back, they still have people in place to kind of keep an eye on things and make sure nothing bad is going on. He wants Luke to see what's happening at, in the Canyonade tonight and to understand. He points to a park called the Tranquility Common. It has a light in the center. They are lights of peace. The people gather together for justice. The white lights are in remembrance of Kamas. The blue lights are in remembrance of victims of the Vrosh slaughter, where the perpetrators gain great wealth from the land and no one has made them give it back. And Luke says he had a student from Brush. He had a lot of anger to work through. The demonstrators are not acting out in anger, just making sure that those wronged will not be forgotten. Then other colors join and eventually mix together. 
Trey says it's not an imperial plot. People genuinely have different ideas of what should be done. Luke agrees the problem is how to reconcile all the differences. Trey doesn't know how they will succeed, but they must do so soon. The inaction is leading some to think the New Republic doesn't care what worlds do to each other. I really like this scene. Yeah? Yeah, I, I just love the, the idea of this protest of, one, how peaceful it is, but two, how it's not just about the Kamala, how just so many different groups and people who've been wronged, and they're still remembering them to make sure they are not forgotten, and I, I find it just really powerful and touching. Yeah. As Luke and R2 walk away, Luke feels a disturbance in the Force. Someone is about to commit murder! Dun-dun. He sees an old woman and a child running from several people. So Luke quickly intervenes and finds five blasters pointed at him. He tells them to put their weapons down. They won't. But then the child moves. It's not a child. It's a Nogri. A grenade is thrown and Luke lifts it out of the way while the Nogri deals with the attackers. The woman introduces herself as Miranda Savage. The Nogri is Plak Marak. They work for Card. Luke says he'd like to see Card, actually, and she says, well, he's just arrived on the planet. How convenient. She calls ahead and tells Card she's bringing a surprise along with the data pad that he wants. Upon seeing Luke, Card says, we'll all be Kessels. And I just have to say, I love that phrase. You like Kessel as a verb? Yeah, it's, just, it's really fun. It's got, lot, it's got a lot of personality behind it, I feel like. Hmm. I feel like saying I'll be kesseled implies I'll be eaten by the horrible spice spiders. Which is not great no, to me. But personality. Okay. Card asks why Luke is here, and Luke says that the Force brought him here. He saw himself here, so here he is. How convenient. And Card says, not a scheduling technique I'd be comfortable with personally. I'm aligned with Card on this. Same. And even Luke's like, yeah, I, I know what you mean. <laughs> I usually don't do it this way. So Luke asks why Card is here, and he says, given the planet's long history of peaceful demonstration, Card is here to see if anyone is trying to stir up trouble. Card also says he's made no progress on the clone hunt, and the pirates have gone to ground. They are interrupted by the starry ice calling and saying Mara has been captured. They play the recording Mara took for them. Mara can clearly be heard breathing after she was knocked out, so they know she was still alive, at least for a while. They also make out at least 50 sets of wings. Card asks if Luke knows anything about this, and he says in his vision, he saw Mara too. He thinks in a cave. Spooky. Very spooky. Card suggests that Luke go rescue her, and Card finds it surprisingly easy to convince Luke to do so. Like, he thought it'd be really hard to have to con him, but no. Luke's like, yeah, I'll go. Basically, Card one time says, you should do it, and Luke's like, no. And then Card's like, but you should do it, and Luke's like, okay. <laughs> Card suggests that Luke picks up the Jade's Fire on the way and put his X-Wing in it. He also orders the creation of the best survival kit that can fit in an X-Wing. And he asks Luke what he wants for backup. And Luke says, no backup, just him. Card's like, dude, I got a fleet. Who do you want? And Luke's like, no, 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 I got this. We don't want to spook him. I got my boo. <laughs> Luke asks Card to let Leia know where he's gone. And before leaving, Card asks Luke about the vision with Mara. And Luke says that he saw her floating in water and looked dead. And Card just says, I see to that. And then long after Luke has left, Card is just staring at the door, thinking about what he's just heard. Poor Talon. I gotta say, when we reached this point in the story, actually it was a little bit earlier when Luke first first arrives on this planet, and it's clear that it's not the planet that Mara is on. Because it kind of seemed like in his vision it could be. Yeah. I was like, they're not going to see each other again during this entire rest of this book. 
they had one scene together. It was a great scene. It was a great scene, but it's not enough. I was like, you have wasted so many pages you could have spent making up for lost time and building this up, but you did not, Timothy. You did not. So I was very frustrated. Sorry. (laughs) By this. The battle alarm goes off in the middle of dessert. Wedge thinks about finishing his dessert, but decides that it won't look very dignified if he's chewing on something while he's running for his ship. Stuffing his face. So regretfully, he leaves it behind and runs for his ship. They have received a panicked call from the Sifkrik system. There's a strong Freslix force moving on the system. Bella Bliss will try to stop it, but he has to be careful to not overstep their legal bounds. Basically, the New Republic can't fire first, and because the government has been given less power, they've given less authority than they would have had five years ago. Yeah, this is like an inter-system issue, not not at the federal level. Yeah, for lack of a better way to put it, yes. Yeah. The rogues get to the system and find a fairly small attacking fleet. They're like, this is it? Really? We can take care of this, but of course they can't just take care of us. That's the problem. And the attacking fleet is not really attacking. They're more delaying any ships trying to leave the system. And Corrin realizes what's going on. Corrin says the Palm Wand plans from Sifkrik have medicinal properties, and this is their annual shipment. And they have to be processed within 30 hours of picking, or they become useless. Corrin calls this serious economic warfare. About 20% of the plant's annual gross product comes from shipping the plants out right now. Bella Bliss can't interfere until he gets an official ask from the government, though. He asks Corrin if any of the ships at the planet belong to Booster. Corrin looks at them and says the sycophant Jolly is actually Hoopster's prank. Bella Bliss orders the rogues to investigate the smuggling ship, and the most direct path to it just happens to be the, through the Freslix blockade force. Convenient. They panic and open fire on the rogues, which gives Bella Bliss the excuse to move in. It worked pretty well. After the fight, Akbar tells Bella Bliss that the Freslix government is filing a protest over what happened. And Bella Bliss asks if we should stand for an inquiry, and Akbar says, don't be absurd, General. However, the call is cut off between the two as the holonet goes down. Bella Bliss is off to Bengini to get it back up. Lando is playing Sabacc with the Senator, but the Senator keeps winning. They are suddenly pulled out of hyperspace and caught in a tractor beam. Once aboard the ship that caught them, they are presented to Grand Admiral Thrawn. You had thought this was going to be the final scene of the book for a while, I I did. Because I was like, I mean, why else are you drawing it out for so long? Like, get a move on, people. Lando is horrified and asks how Thrawn survived. Thrawn says he survived due to a unique combination of several factors, but is not currently giving out the details. There. Thrawn says he wants to help deal with the Kamas situation. Senator Miyatamiya asks how. Thrawn says he can identify the guilty parties. He just needs to meet with the Bothan clan leaders in person, and he'll know right away. Mm-hmm. Miyatamiya asks, wouldn't it be simpler to just give them the untouched Imperial records? Thrawn says those are being looked at, but Bastion is expansive, and it could take weeks or months to go through. Lando decides to test Thrawn, and he says he once saw Thrawn and Card together and asks where it was. And before answering, Thrawn says he will deal with Card's many betrayals in time. And then the senator's like, but you didn't answer the question, dude. And Thrawn's like, fine. Thrawn says Lando saw them when they were on Mirkur together. He was looking for Luke Skywalker at the time. He knew Lando and someone else was there. He guesses it was General Solo. But he thought it was just Card's people who were watching him, not Lando and Han. He asks Lando if that satisfies his curiosity, and Lando says it does. 
They're then let go. Tears calls Disra to tell him it went well, and he plans to stay in rebel space for a little while longer. Disra is not happy. This was not part of the plan, but he knows he can't stop Tears. Tears says it will only be a couple of weeks. The DM Allen Senator gives his report to the Senate, saying that Thrawn is alive. The Grand Convocation Chamber has suddenly become very cold for Leia. Some senators think this changes nothing. Others who remember Thrawn are just scared stuff. And yeah, they're the smart ones. Or at least they're the ones with the experience, I should say. Something they should strike at the Empire right now with Thrawn back in charge, before it is too late. Senator Dixono says this may not be true. He casts doubt on both the Senator's report and on Lando. Leia speaks up to defend Lando and says she'll personally vouch for his character. The Senator then says it was possible they were tricked, and not even necessarily by the Empire. Lando says he tested Thrawn, and in his opinion, Thrawn passed. Dixono says Card could have told someone. Basically, since Lando's test was about Thrawn me with Card, Card could have talked about the others, and that's how this imposter could have known about it. Yeah. Leia then defends Card as well, saying he wouldn't be any he wouldn't have any part of this. Dixono says he would. He's a smuggler who sells information to the highest bidder. He then asks where Leia stands on the Bothan issue, and she asks what he means. And he says, do you believe that full reparations and justice should be demanded to the Bothans, or do you, like the Demolin Senator, prefer to allow the horrific crime to go unpunished, perhaps even enough to create a situation that would force this chamber to that decision? Someone else adds that's clear where Leia stands, given her bondmate fired on peaceful protesters. At this point, Gavrisom interrupts and says that hasn't been proven true. But Leia knows Dixono has already managed to damage her credibility, and it will look worse the next time she defends Lando or the Demolin Senator or Card. Leia then receives a call and activates her privacy field. Card is on the other end. What timing? Bad timing. He has a message to give her in person, but a line director at Coruscant Space Control is not letting him land. It's an Ashori. She tells Card where to meet once he gets through and then calls Coruscant Space Control herself. I immediately thought somebody's going to find out about this and they're going to be mad, but then, like, nothing ever comes of it. Carib Devist is a farmer and he's had a good day. So we're reading a brand new character now, pretty late in the book. Yep. His brother, Sabin, comes to find him and says that it has happened. He confirmed it as the proper Imperial Code. After ten years, they are finally being called upon. Sabin also says the order came directly from Thrawn. Carib says if Thrawn is really back, then the Empire might just win. He also says to get everyone together, they'll meet at Sabin's tonight to plan. Han, Leia, and Lando meet with Card. He asks where the kids are and is told Chewie took them to Kashyyyk to visit his family. Convenient. Just shuffle them off. Yeah. The kids are not in this book, as we've already said. Nope. (laughs) Shada has been trying to contact Leia, but continually been rebuffed, so she's going to try the Mistral way instead of the official New Republic way. She pretends to be drunk, and when Anogri approaches her, she gets the drop on him and heads in. She's on the roof and scales the wall until she gets to a window. Card asks Lando if he's sure it was Thrawn, and Lando says he is. Han says it could be a trick. Card asks how it could be done. Han says surgery, maybe. Lando says he knows what scars to look for, and there weren't any. Lando also says the voice was dead on. Card suggests maybe it was a human replica droid, like what Prince Zizor used to have. And Lando says it wasn't just the body and voice, it was the presence that he felt. It was Thrawn. Card says, let's assume worst case. Thrawn is back. Why show himself now? Leia says to increase tension levels in the Senate, which he's already succeeded at doing. Lando says maybe he found another superweapon, but Card doubts that they'd have probably heard of it by now. A lot of time has passed. Also, it's just not Thrawn style, really. Yeah. 
Card asks what their next move should be. And Lenders has solving the Kamas issue so they can focus on Thrawn. They need to f- find out the guilty f- parties. Card says there are only two places that might have the information, Bastion and Yaga Minor. And even he doesn't know where Bastion is. That's how well hidden this place is. Wow. Lando says he wasn't thinking of Imperial sources. He was thinking of someone else. Card realizes who Lando is referencing and says that they don't have them. They. Whoever they is. Lando says he's talking about a different source entirely. Han asks, what are you two talking about? Because they're speaking very obliquely. And Card and Lando then excuse themselves to talk in private and go to the boys' bedroom. Shada looks through a window and sees a children's bedroom. There's only one alarm, which she disables and gets inside. She hears footsteps coming and sort of dives behind the bed into this crevice, like, between the bed and the wall. Card says they had an agreement. Lando says he hasn't broken it. Lando also never understood it. So what if George Cardas was once a competitor to Card? It's not a big deal today. Card says, don't say that name. Also, he wasn't a competitor. He was something else entirely. Lando says if Cardas can help, someone should go searching for him. Card says Cardas is more ruthless than Jabba in some ways, which, what an introduction to a character. He's worse than Jabba. Lando points out that Card had him and Mara hunt him down several years ago. So, like, how dangerous is he really if you had us hunting him? Card says he tried to get them to not go. Besides, they didn't find him, just the system that Cardas was located. Lando eventually convinces Card to go in his place, because at first he's like, you know what, fine. You don't want to go? I'll go. Me and Bella Bliss, we're going to fly out, see Cardas. And Card's like, no, 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 no. He'll blow you out of the sky. That's a terrible idea. Fine, I'll go. This kind of matches up nicely with the uh, Carillion trilogy when Lando cons Luke into going with him. Uh-huh. Just, I love Lando conning someone. Totally, he's very entertaining. I like that, but boy, I was so confused during this scene. Yes. So, so confused. Because I recognize the name. Mm-hmm. Because he was in Outbound Flight. Yeah. So I have read that. It's been a really long time. And I don't remember a lot of the details of what his deal was. But I was also like, that was way long ago. What is this stuff about Lando and Mara hunting him down? So this is the story. So we've mentioned Zonda's a couple of big retcons in these two books. And this is the start of, I would argue, the biggest one. Yep. And uh, actually, what I like is he doesn't just retcon it right now. He kind of starts it here and continues it into the next book where we finally find out the the entire truth of that trip. Mm-hmm. So I like how he does it. Cause like that's a hard, what he's recording is a huge moment in the EU in the nineties. Yep. <laughs> and, and we're not saying what it is right now. We'll save that for the next podcast. Yep. <laughs> but this is the start of that giant retcon. Yeah. It's just, I actually think part of the problem is that as I was reading this, just naturally, I'm a little bit more in a like modern mindset. Right. And sometimes this happens in Disney canon where a book will suddenly summarize a bunch of stuff that happened that didn't happen in anything that I've read. And I'm like, oh, this must be a comic tie in or something. Or, oh, this like must the end be of like... uh, Rise of the Red Blade. The yeah. Epilogue. Yeah. That was, that was from a comic that you actually had read, but you read it quite a so while long ago. ago. Like, even I had a moment of like, I think I've read this comic, didn't I? And I like, yes, I had read the comic. But yeah. And so I was like, Reading this, my natural inclination was like, was there like a comic series or something that was happening at this time? Or like, did we skip stuff? Like, I could have sworn we really weren't skipping stuff at this point. I was so confused. I think I like turned to you after I finished that part and was like, what is going on? Am I supposed to know about this? So 
again, one of the great failures of the EU in the 90s was there was because certain authors talked, certain authors didn't, and some authors would just write whatever they wanted to. And there was not a guiding creative vision. There was kind of a certain things you can and can't do, but yeah, each one kind of wanted to do their own. So you this is far from the only recon we see in the 90s. And the, but this is one of the bigger ones, I would argue. And I, I think the issue is we don't see a lot of other authors really reference this recon again, other than Iron Jedi does a little bit. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about this right now, because I don't want to give spoilers for the next book. However, I will say I will just say I'm not super impressed with this with where this eventually goes. Though I do think you like what is retconned away. I do and I don't. Okay. And we're going to have to talk about that when we get there. Okay. But like, I, I feel very conflicted about it. I feel very conflicted about a couple of things that Zahn does with a particular character. And it's so funny because it's his character. Like, he created this character. <laughs> Honestly, the one that I'm the most conflicted about is that thing that Luke said about Callista earlier in the book. That's the one that bothers that me. Always too, bothers. That too. Like, that's the one that bothers me the most. But it it, it kind of... It's part of a bigger pattern that I don't like in this duology. Yeah. Anyway. Wait for Vision of the Future. Yeah. Come how's, back how's for... That, how's that for a tease? You know, another like four hours of podcasting genius. <laughs> if you need to deep clean your shower and tub, that'll be the time when we release a four-hour episode about Vision no, of that, the Future. It's going to be a two-parter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and each one still might be four hours. Oh, God. It's a long We are not going to record for eight hours. I will not stand for it. (laughs) Okay. Seven and a half? No. We'll see. Han and Leia are perplexed by the other two. And then Garak interrupts them and says, the sentry on the roof is not responding and there could be an intruder. Card and Lando return and unknown to them, they are followed by a woman. (laughs) I love this. Lando jumps and grabs his blaster but gets caught in his cloak. (laughs) No capes. Garak's blaster is immediately on her, and Han isn't far behind. Card just steps out of the way. Smartest man in the room. <laughs> like, I'm just going to get out of... Just going to step to the side. And Leia just sits there calmly and doesn't move. I love Leia. Leia asks who she is, and the woman says that she has shot who to call, and she's not going to hurt them. And Leia says she knows, which is why she didn't move or react. A Nogri sneaks up behind her, surprising Shada, and tells her to hold up her arms, and she complies. Leia asks why she's here. And Shada says she wanted to talk to Leia, and this was the only way she could do it. She wants to join the New Republic. What does that mean? It's not getting less confusing. She knows about the search for the Kamas document and just heard that Thrawn is back. She says she can help. They need her, given her skill set, as she took out a Nogri and snuck up on them. Lando suggests that she go with Card. Han asks, where is Card going? He says a special mission that Lando asked him to do. He'll try to get a non-imperial copy of the Kamas document, and he'd be happy to have Shada come with him for some strange reason. She agrees. Card then tells him about Mara's accident and Luke going off to help. Specifically Han- because some of them are like, well, Luke will be back soon. He yeah. can help out with all of this. Card's, and Card's like, actually like, about that. The reason I'm here. No, <laughs> the reason I came here. <laughs> Han isn't happy. He says they could use Luke's help right now. Leia also tells Card about the Hand of Thrawn data card, and he says he already knows about it. Card will leave immediately. Leia offers him the services of 3PO in case he needs an interpreter. As they leave, Shada asks Card who Cardas is. He says, ask again, once they are on their way to the Exocron system. 
He asks her why she left Mazik, and she says, ask again on their way out of the Exocron system. This time, the alarm goes off in the middle of the night. Though, thankfully, the rogues are actually sleeping in their X-Wings and are ready for battle. That sounds so uncomfortable. Oh, God. How do you sleep in an X-Wing? Pilots, man. I can't even sleep when I have, you know, the air conditioner on, the fan going for white noise, the air purifier, my nose strip, melatonin, Zyrtec. Like, how do these people sleep so easily? I'm jealous. Hilarious <laughs> <laughs> and ship is on the way to attack Bothawi. And the, ro- the rogues have arrived ahead of the fleet, so it's only 12 X-Wings against 6 capital ships, 20 smaller ships, and at least 5 squadrons of starfighters. So this time, it's a pretty large force, and like, oh boy, we might be in trouble. Wedge calls and asks why the force is here, and they say that two Larisai were killed in the riot, and their law is clear. They either get to kill an equal number of guilty people, or 10 innocents for each one of them killed. So 20, 20 innocent people they get to kill. And uh, what a law that one is. Wedge orders S-Foils to attack position, and Corrin shouts no. Something feels wrong. They inspect each other's ships visually and see that the ships have been booby-trapped. The rogues are out of this fight. By the time Bella Bliss arrives, the Larison have destroyed a Bothan ship with a crew of about 20. Rut-row. Leia says three high counselors will vote against any resolution against the Larison since nothing has been done against the Bothans. The false equivalency of some of these people drives me absolutely nuts. It is... Han says they need to be slapped down or others will be encouraged to do similar actions. And Leia says dozens of other governments have already filed their own list of demands against the Bothans within the Senate. The Dimala and Mon Calamari have announced that they are sending ships to Bothwe to protect against further aggression. And the Larisai have admitted to sabotaging the rogues and are quite proud of this fact. Han says they're all fools. Thrawn is the real threat. Kamasi don't want this, and they, but they become the excuse people have been looking for. Han wants to take Leia on a vacation. They'll go to Packreek Major, where there's an annual sector conference, and a New Republic official should attend anyway. Han's already cleared it with Gaversum, and Gaversum wouldn't mind if they both disappeared for a little while because they've become politically embarrassing to him recently. Han, quote-unquote, opening fire on Boffins. Yeah. Leia with Dixano in the Senate. Like, it's not a good time to be them. Han says after Packreek Major, they can go to Packreek Minor, where they can have a real vacation. Pelion has been in the Pesatine system for 28 hours. He'll give Bella Bliss at least a few more days before he leaves. Suddenly, four Carillion gunships appear and their IDs are obscured, though they have the Carillion Defense Force insignia on their holes very clear and easy to read. Pelion orders the tractor beams turned on so they can try and capture one or at least collect debris from the battle. He also wants it clear that they are not to be the aggressor in this fight. They will let the other ships attack first before retaliating so no fighters are launched yet. They attack, and Paleon says, use only turbo lasers for now. After a few passes, he sends out a Preybird squadron and gives them a specific vector to fly. He then orders torpedoes fired at the Preybirds. He has them break formation, and the torpedoes slam into the attack force. Paleon says that was not Bella Bliss. The Preybirds just did an A-wing slash. He was at the battle where Bella Bliss invented the maneuver. (laughs) They will stay here, and any unknown opponents are welcome to try again. Ending the book. Dun-dun. So, what'd you think about this tome, for lack of a better way to put it? I'll say Behemoth for Vision of the Future. Yeah. So, overall, while this book was compelling for me, it felt really unfinished and pretty unsatisfying as a result. Like, it didn't have its own complete plot. I will say, one thing I've seen online, I have not verified this, is that this was originally planned to be one book, and then was split up. 
in the middle of. For obvious reasons. Yeah, if this was one book, this is a Wheel of Time length book at that point. Yeah. And frankly, separately, they're already kind of Wheel of Time length books. Vision of the Future at 700 pages, yeah. So there was all of the setup. There were all of these political machinations. There was maneuvering various people into various places, and there was setting them all on these paths to collide, but like never quite getting there. Even Thrawn revealing himself to Lando felt like a huge letdown to me. It was really one of the only plots that felt like it had progressed in that now the New Republic knows that someone claiming to be Thrawn is here, but the reaction to it was so comparatively muffled that it still felt totally unresolved. I wish a few more things had actually happened in this book, like more clues about the alien ships, maybe a possible hint at which Bothans were responsible for the Kamasi thing, even an eruption of outright fighting over Bothawi, like just let's have some action. <laughs> just some action, please. Yeah, like most of the action was like the stuff of the Larison ship at the end, but we don't actually see that fight. The stuff with the at the Sif Crick system when the rogues flew there through that other fleet, we didn't really see that fight either. Yeah. This was there wasn't a lot of fighting in this. And part. both of those things, I was just like, I understand how this is relevant, but also those could have been summarized. We could have been hearing about those scenes from a different character who was actually already a POV character. Like, no offense, Wedge, but like, we didn't we didn't need to be there for those things. Fair. So, like I said earlier, this is a very different Star Wars book. It's slow and methodical, and with a ton of setup. And I don't mind that because this is not, to me, not the slog of certain other books have been to get through that are very. Slow and methodical. I really like Zen's writing style for the most part. I do agree, though, that feels unfinished, but I still really love this book. But again, it was my second, third, fourth, fifth read-throughs that made me fall in love. The first time I read this book, I was like, I didn't like as much as the Thrawn Trilogy. Today, I still don't like as much as the Thrawn Trilogy, but I still really like it a lot. But the first time through, I was kind of like, where is Zon going with this? Having read both books, I'm like, I know where he's going with this. I just don't like it. And at the time, I was like, I hope he knows where he's going with this. And then I read Vision of the Future, and I was like, eh, okay. <laughs> My biggest complaint, though, like of all of these things, is, like I said earlier, I wanted to be conned. Like, I did not want to see all the machinations behind the Imperial scenery. I wanted to doubt the entire time whether or not it was really Thrawn. I wanted to have a sliver of that doubt and that dread and that foreboding the entire book. Like, reveal it at the end of this one, whatever. But I wanted to be conned. And as it is, I just don't feel a true threat from the imposter and from Disra and Tears. Not like a Thrawn level threat, and not even like, I don't know, not even really like a Zinge level threat. Or a Dala level threat because they are so weak. Yeah. I want to feel threatened. Like, I want the hero, I want to feel like the heroes are threatened. And they think that they're being threatened because they don't know. But the thing is, like, I'm not in it with them. I'm, like, outside of it. And so I'm like, you guys just, just figure it out. <laughs> like, it's not him. You're fine. Just, a, like, in general, I tend not to like seeing a lot of stuff from the baddies anyway. And especially here, I felt like we spent far too much time with them at the cost of all the protagonists I wanted to be hanging around with and whose plot lines could have progressed further if we had not been spending so much time with the baddies. That's fair. I feel a good compromise here would have been to keep the bits from Paleon's point of view and add in a bit of him kind of nibbling at the fringes of Dizra's scheme, maybe picking up some whiff of a rumor about the whole thing so that there was less of the Imperial side and the reader could still be in the dark. 
but there's still like a little bit of the imperial side. So on the one hand, I totally get what you're saying about wanting to be conned, and a part of me absolutely agrees with that. On the other hand, I usually enjoy to look at the villain and imperial side of things in Star Wars, especially when it's on writing it. And just because we know about Flim doesn't mean we know everything that's going on right now. There is information we don't know about all these uh, characters who will not learn until the end of the next book. I know. Well, yeah, it, yes, now you know. <laughs> However, it didn't make a big difference to okay. me in the end. Spoilers for my, my feelings in the future. You are just a person overall who likes seeing too much. Mm-hmm. Just too, too much. It's not too much to me, but yes, <laughs> I, like, I like seeing more than you. How's that? You like an omniscient narrator. Often, yes. I hate that. Like, if there was a way to screen for books that have an omniscient narrator on, like, Goodreads or Storygraph or whatever, I would use the crap out of that function because I would immediately be like, absolutely not. I'm not reading that. Okay. <laughs> this is a strong personal preference. But I think it changes everything as regards tension in a story if the reader is somewhat in the dark. That's just important to me. Anyway. So, by contrast to all of my complaints, I really tended to have a great time when all of our protagonists were somehow in a room together and interacting. The stuff with Luke and Mara and the pirate base was riveting. The inconvenient timing of Card's phone calls, fantastic, though, like, slightly too inconvenient, I will say. Like, uh, there was some timing stuff in this book that made me go, really? Like, I can feel... You can feel Zahn. I can feel Zahn moving people around here. Mara setting down on that strange planet and getting ambushed. Luke coming across Card at a convenient time. Leia calm in the eye of the storm as Shada's presence was revealed. Like, all of those scenes I really liked. I wanted there to be a lot more of them. More of the characters doing stuff aside from putting in requests with the information brokers they know. Because that feels like a lot of what they did. And more of them actually being together. Because I felt like a lot of them ended up doing too many thinky thoughts by themselves. Luke especially. And it's not a hard and fast rule, but I think it's a good one. Like, you really should just avoid having your individual characters alone too often. It it leads to, like, too much navel-gazing and not enough forward movement. Or even, like, backward movement. Like, it's just... Sta- it's a momentum killer. It's just totally stationary. As usual, Zon writes these characters and their actions so well. It's something that's not... It's something that not every Star Wars author is able to do, frankly, as we've discussed many times over the last few years. Yeah, like, characterization, he's still got right. Yeah. What makes it even more impressive to me is the characters feel like they've progressed since the original trilogy, the Thrawn trilogy, and the rest of the EU. Like, I feel like this is not Luke from Return of the Jedi, it's not Luke from the Thrawn trilogy, and it's also not Luke from the rest of the EU. He has progressed through all three of those stages, and again, that's something that some authors really struggle with. Sometimes I'm reading like... This is very clearly Return of the Jedi, Han, Luke, or Leia. Or this is even Empire Strikes Back, Han, Luke, or Leia. They have just reset to their personalities at that time. Right. So that's one of the things that's always really impressed me about Zahn, is he's able to keep that character progression going, not just through his own work, but I feel like that ties in with with what other authors have done. Now, what he does ties in better with some authors than others, but he's still able to tie in, I feel like, with most of them. Specifically, there are certain authors who he's decided, like, he's going to fight them in the pit. Basically. Hamblin Anderson. And Veach. I and mean, well 
yes, v, v we haven't gotten Fox. we haven't gotten to that yet, but there will be a very clear like meet me in hell <laughs> kind of moment in Vision of the Future. Yes. <laughs> so the Kamas issue, the Republic polarizing around this is totally true to life. For a really painful but true analogy in our world, there are shootings everywhere, all of the time, but only certain names and locations go viral and end up representing a greater system issue, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, that's kind of how I'm thinking about Kamas. However, because I don't live in that galaxy, and because we've rarely heard about Kamas before, I kept asking through the whole book, like, why? Why Kamas? Why does it matter? Kind of the way that Shada and Karoli did. They're like, nobody cares about Emberlane. Like, they care about Kamas. There is a reason for that. But, like, there are lots There are lots of places like Kamas. Mm-hmm. The Empire has strip-mined, orbitally bombarded, poisoned, and terrorized so many star systems. With the aid of so many planetary governments, also. Like, they didn't do that alone. There were, just like in the Kamas issue, which I understand was... I guess pre-Empire and post-Clone Wars and when, when Palpatine was senator and also 40 years ago somehow. But still, like, there are all these people still running around in your government and just, like, alive around who were complicit in other things that the Empire did and nobody is going after them. <laughs> it feels like... The Empire was apparently in possession of a million systems at one point. There must be so many targets like this. Mm -hmm. Like a million systems is impossible to imagine. It feels illogical, even though I know it's totally logical, even in the context of our world. I just don't have any ties to Kamas. I didn't see it get destroyed in fiction, and it doesn't feel like it matters to me. Yeah, I agree. I I really wish Kamas is something I was talking about in other 90s EU books a lot more. Again, we... Ijedic comes up pretty strongly and prevalently. Yeah. Um, with Corn and Elagos that they talk about that stuff. And that a was lot. published before this. Yes. Yeah. And again, that's so when we talked about Ijedi, we've talked about how Zon and Stackpole did a lot of collaboration on it. And at the time I was talking about how much that about was Mara. It wasn't just Mara, a lot of it they were talking about was this issue, was the Kamas issue. And I'm so glad that was an Ijedi. I it deep, just wasn't enough. Yeah, I deeply wish it was in other books. I think both authors do a good job of, to me, showing how important it is. But I do agree it would be much stronger if other authors acknowledged it. They don't have to, like, wax poetic about it for ten pages. But just, like, when they list imperial atrocities, have that be one that comes up every time. It just seems like by the time Zahn was even thinking about this, it was too late for them to do that. And, like, he clearly had the idea for this, I think, back in the Thrawn trilogy. But I don't think he had the details figured out. Yeah. Because he knew there was something on Mount Tantus that Borsk wanted that would implicate, implicate the Balfins in something terrible. And it could have been anything at that time. Right. Like, he was just planting that. Yeah. He didn't know he was ever going to come back to it at the time. So I kind of wish he had planted something a little bit more... Specific? Compelling. Oh, fair. <laughs> no, he didn't need to... He could have done anything with that plant, right? I just wish he had done something else with it because he left it so open for himself. It could be anything. It could, it be. could be a lot of things that are more meaningful. I do. One thing I do like about that was I do like how this actually ties back into the reason why the Bothans joined the rebellion and fight so hard for them because they know some of their people did something so terrible and they will make up for that. Yeah. I really like that aspect of it for the Bothans because 
the Bothans throughout the EU, primarily through Borsk, we've seen them be selfish. We don't see a lot of great things with them, Asir being the exception to that rule, I feel like. And she is, a few times we hear interact with other Bothans, clearly so different from most Bothans. Yeah. So I really like that, like, you might be like, why are they even with the Rebellion and the Republic? Like, they don't, if it, if it's like they don't fit they clearly well. don't play well with others. Exactly. So, so I really like this as a reason for that. Like, to me, that actually, that part does tie in nicely to the original trilogy and 90s EU stories. Sure. So, like, some parts of it work really well for me, but some parts could have used more help from other authors. Yeah. It's hard to build on a house of cards when a bunch of the cards at the bottom are missing. Yeah. And I, I think Zon does as well a job as anyone could in that situation. That's how I tend to look at it. Yeah. Like, I don't think anyone else could be given this story and done this as well. I just think he was trying to do too much. That I will definitely agree But with. I also don't know how much of that was, like, what self-inflicted was... versus instructional from the outside. Like, yeah. I just don't. We don't know. We'll probably never know. Well, there might be some interviews around about that. Eh, maybe. This is a minor quibble, but a lot of characters conveniently ended up in proximity to each other or not when the plot demanded it, and I noticed it a lot in this one. It seemed really overly convenient at times. So much so that I was thinking back to the conversation that we had with Aaron Motes from Legends Lounge. I don't I don't think this part ended up being in the episode. Um, no, I don't think it does. Yeah, we were just talking off mic and about Zahn, and he was saying that like one of the things that kind of bugs him is that it, there's just this convenient, like... So and so shows up here for X reason, but it turns out it's good that they're there for Y reason instead. And just every time it happened in this one, I was like, "Oh my god, he's so right! It's making me crazy." <laughs> like they're just showing up. Luke literally just has like an extended kind of force trip vision thing, and that's the that's the explanation. That, that's for some actually of the, the one that bothers me the stuff. That, that might be the one that bothers me the least because he at least. He looked into the force. It was kind of like him seeing himself on Cloud City and Empire. It's just that by the time he does that, it had already happened so many yeah, times so in, the in the book, book. that yeah. it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. I was like, really? You're going to try to explain this to me now? <laughs> Get out. <laughs> Timothy, stop. <laughs> so I've previously mentioned that Paleon is my favorite Imperial. And I always give you the most skeptical look when you say you do. that. And it's in this series where that really starts to show. I love the fact that him, an Imperial officer who's in charge of the Imperial Navy, is the one pushing for peace. It's not the Republic. It's not Leia. It's not Mon Mothma. It is Paleon. And I love that. He knows the Empire won't survive and makes the rest of the Imperial leadership realize or at least acknowledge that fact as well when, honestly, normally, they would never even consider this. He bullies them into it, and I really like that. Well, he logics them into it, too. Yeah. Like, it reminds he, me of when him and Dalla sat down with all of those. Um, yes. That and then just Dalla's like, them. murder. Murder it is. He's always been an interesting character, but he becomes a much more compelling one in this book and series. And my, my favorite moment of this book, I think, him, other than wanting to push for the peace, is that final scene. Because clearly, we know, as the reader, that they're trying to make like Bella Bliss is the one attacking him. And he's seeing this like, okay, I can't ID these ships. It's clearly Corellian ships based on the ID. Someone wants me to think Bella Bliss is attacking me. Like, he got the message and he's coming after me. So, like, how can I test this? And I love how he tests that. It's just, it's something that Thrawn would have done. Yeah. And to, to me, it shows how far Paleon has come in the decade since Thrawn's death. Yeah. 
both from a strategic standpoint, but also from a like, I will not fire. I am not the aggressive empire that I came up in. He is. Yeah. I think there was a little bit of, I think this is both in this book and in vision of the future, but there's a little bit of like, this empire is not the empire that it used to be. There are a lot more aliens in their midst. There's just a lot. They're like less. It's not a Sith in charge. So they aren't quite as terrible. Yeah. I think there's a little bit of an attempt at like rehabilitating Paleon's character almost, which I have still weeks and weeks later have not decided how I feel about it. I like him as a character is the thing. Like, I think he's a great character, Mm -hmm. but I would never name anybody my favorite Imperial. That's fair. Like not even Thrawn. No, I don't have a favorite Imperial. They are all space Nazis. They are. <laughs> I, I think what, why he's maybe is because I feel like he at least partially goes beyond that. He he realizes the error of what they've done. I guess. I almost feel like if he had really realized the error of what they'd done, he'd let all of the moths keep pushing them into war until the Empire was fully eradicated. Not reasoning like, oh, let's keep our thousand systems. Well, I think he also, despite all this, he still is not a fan of how the Republic works as a government. Yeah. Not authoritarian enough. Yeah, I don't know. I have I have favorite villains. I would never call somebody my favorite imperial though. That's fair. And this is far from the last time we're going to see him doing things I like. What? He's not dead. I guess that's true. Spoilers for the next book: Paleon does not die. <laughs> Sorry, if you were waiting with bated breath for his fate. About this thirty-year-old book. Oh, it's like 25 years, 25 years now. Right. I did. Okay. I'm remembering now that after I finished Vision of the Future, I had some ideas for how Paleon might come up down the line based on the three facts I know about the future <laughs> of the EU after this point, because I have so little. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. We'll see. Every time he comes up, I understand a little bit more of why you say that, but I think it's going to be years before I get the full picture. Yeah, it's going to take a while. Yeah. All right, my last point. There were just a lot of proper nouns. Oh, God. So <laughs> many apostrophes. Timothy. <laughs> it, this is neither up nor down, really, but you do kind of have to brace yourself for it. There are a lot of cultures in this book that we've never heard of before having very in-depth conflicts with one another that feel like they have a lot of history behind it, all of them with names that are hard to get your mind and your mouth around. Many of them also with apostrophes where they needn't to be. <laughs> Again, this is one of the reasons why I like this book better than I reread, because I have I know who these cultures and people are, so I understand it a lot better. There were parts there were times when I was reading this book when I was thinking to myself, Oh my god, this is what our D D group feels like when I'm running a session where I have to do a lot of exposition. <laughs> a little bit. And there are a lot of proper nouns, and there are two gods whose names are very similar to each other, but they have very different domains. And, like, I understand all of it. I'm, like, galaxy brain over here because I've been working on it for weeks. And you're all just like, can you spell that? (laughs) (laughs) Waiting. (laughs) Yeah. I did not opt into Timothy Zahn's Pathfinder campaign. Like, I didn't want all of these proper notes (laughs) in here. You don't do the apostrophes, at least. Most of the time. I I try to use them very sparingly. Or like with an elvish name. Makes sense. But it's not like 
every random alien has an apostrophe in this book, it feels like. Even um, elvish names in my setting don't really have apostrophes. Yeah, I guess not. They're still strange to us to look at. Yeah. yeah. Roos Gill yeah. is one of them. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's it sounds a lot like the pot calling the kettle black when I complain about this, but it just it was a lot. I, I do think this I think is, there were half a dozen new, yeah, distinct alien cultures. We mentioned this earlier, but the, to me that is definitely a legitimate criticism of Zon. Uh, kind frankly, of across the board. Yeah, most of his books are <laughs> like this. The the original tr- Thrawn trilogy I think bothered me less. It did bother me the first time I did read it, but it bothered me less because it's. It is a brand new era, and we still have characters like Akbar, who, like the Moncal, are very familiar to us, who are at mm-hmm. butting heads with Borsk. Whereas now, it's like, again, if they'd used more species, I'm like, the Moncal, yes, they're defending the Bothans, which is kind of funny in retrospect, but the, the, they are not the primary one. It's the Ashori and the Diamala who really take center stage. And I wish one of those species had been known about previously, or he'd used a pre-existing species. Yeah. Even more like, use like a Shistavet, something we've seen a handful of times, but know almost nothing about, but at least there's some familiarity with. Yeah. I, I think that would have helped. At least to replace one side of the conflict with something yeah. like that. Like, it doesn't have to be Moncal, we know a lot about their species. Pick something we just don't know. Pick a Celestin. We don't know a lot about Celestins right now. No. I, I think that would have helped. <laughs> I feel like I sort of understand why he didn't, though. Only because... It would require reading in depth all of the books that have come before his to make sure that there was no clue about mm. Sullustan culture that he's going to contradict, right? And or retcon. Other authors don't care. Some did. Some other authors don't care if they're contradicting things, but I feel like when Zahn contradicts something, he wants to do it deliberately. <laughs> Yes, I will agree with that. <laughs> I'm not saying he doesn't contradict things. I'm saying that he chooses to do so with great deliberation. <laughs> All right. It has been less than 48 hours since you finished Spectre of the Past. Yep. Let's talk about how that's going to impact Vision of the Future. Okay. I'm writing the script here. Who or what is the Hand of Thrawn? Okay, so first of all, I really don't think it's a who. I just 100% agree with Mara. Mara's assessment of like he didn't really have he doesn't have a hand of Palpatine type yeah like that's not really his shtick so I became really stuck on the fact that the data card that says the hand of Thrawn came out of the mountain at Wayland yeah because I know that Thrawn was in control of that facility for a little while theoretically like even longer than a little while because that's where the majority of the clones came from. However, I I just couldn't see like I don't know, such because it was such a Palpatine E facility, like I just didn't see him storing his data there. Does that make sense? Yes. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's that's my like gut instinct. It also doesn't sound like something that Thrawn would have created himself. It's too like the name is too glitzy. So you think the Hand of Thrawn is less Thrawn's more Palpatine's about Thrawn? That's what I was thinking. Like, because Palpatine's the one, or I guess theoretically he maybe isn't. Maybe it's all of his weird directors and stuff who name programs the way that they maybe do. Maybe Isard? Yeah, maybe. But, like, Thrawn doesn't name things that way in in my understanding of him. So I started thinking, like, this was a relic of Palpatine's. It was... His hope that the Chiss would eventually unite somehow with the Empire 
to deal with an outside threat, an outside threat, like as in outside Imperial space. And it was codenamed Hand of Thrawn to conceal its true nature, to like misdirect, you know, busybodies who come looking, who see anything. I thought that like the Hand of Thrawn could be the Chiss acting as some kind of defense fleet against an exterior threat, basically, or something Chiss related. Okay. Um, it could also quite literally just be Thrawn's hand in a tube. Thrawn. Waiting to be, you know, cloned. I don't know. I might be overthinking it. If I go against all of my gut instincts and accept that maybe Thrawn or Paleon would name this thing this way, then maybe it actually is one of his initiatives and it was meant to activate after his death in a similar way to Palpatine's contingency in New Canon. Um, maybe that, they got that idea from here. That does feel very Thrawn. It does. Like he would have backup plans chess, to his death. Yeah. yeah, like he's such a chess player. He's always thinking ahead. But I also think it could have been, maybe not for after his death, but like Paleon's emergency switch. Like if, if Thrawn is taken out of the action somehow, not even dead, but imagine that the fake story they told during this thing about him being in a coma for 10 years or whatever from the knife wound was true. Maybe this was meant to be like a guidebook for Paleon or for somebody else to like continue his work. Like, <laughs> make sure you go to this system at this time because I've planted a bunch of things to happen there. <laughs> And we need to take care of that so that my grand plan can continue. And because the mountain was destroyed, Palin never found us. And not only destroyed, but in possession of the New Republic. Yeah. Like, they lost the mountain. So, yeah, I think those are all of my ideas. Okay. It's going to be none of those things, I'm sure. We'll see. We will learn the identity of the Bothans involved in the destruction of Kamas, and will that be enough to settle the issue? I think, yes, we're going to learn the identities, and no, it's not going to matter. Like, at this point, the issue has gained too much momentum. People were always already weird about the Bothans. None of them are going to let this go because it would mean letting go of their individual squabbles, like their own version of Kamas. Mm -hmm. And that actually, like, I think of all, pretty much all of them, their individual petty squabbles mean more to them than this Kamas issue. Oh, yeah, and the they're, reason, they're the excuse at this point. Yeah, the reason they're holding on to it so hard is so that they can be allowed to continue with their petty squabbles, basically. It's just the principle of the thing. Also, like, there's a real, a very real possibility that at this point those Bothans are already dead. This was a while ago. A lot of time has passed, like, what, like 50-something years in this version of canon? Give or take, yeah. Because it's, like, right at the end of the Clone Wars, and in this version of canon, the Clone Wars were, like, 40 years before A New Hope. So, like, if the Bothans are already dead, are, are, is everybody going to throw up their hands and be like, well, the matter's closed then? No, there's no way they're going to think that way. The only, my only argument against that, of, that not being de- of them being dead, is I feel like Borsk or another Bothan have said, you know, this was so long ago, they are, they're surely dead by now. It makes me think Bothans are long-lived enough for, for some to still potentially be alive. I mean, if the agents were in their 20s or 30s, and they have a similar lifespan to a human, it's very possible that they're still alive. But... I could see Borsk and other Bothans just not even presenting that as a concept right now because they're trying to buy time. And I think they know the same thing that I'm saying, which is that nobody's going to care if they're dead. They want to exact some blood from the stone that is the Bothan people. Is the Empire correct that the New Republic will one day destroy itself, whether that's soon or decades from now? I mean, eventually is a long timeline. Rome always burns eventually. (laughs) 
<laughs> like every, I mean, every system of government eventually fails, right? There's no system of government currently in place on our world that existed 2000 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's no nation or country or what operating in the exact same way within the exact same borders. I'm saying that and now I'm like, somebody's going to tell me that I'm wrong about that. But I think I'm probably right on the scale of like a couple thousand years. Yeah, you are correct on that. Okay. Unless there's a small country that has managed to just stay out of the way. Which, possible. <laughs> I thought it's unlikely, but possible. I would think maybe like island nations have had the best shot at this because like their borders are very fixed, right? So at least that part, if there's only ever been one nation on one island, they maybe haven't expanded or contracted. But like their system of governance has probably changed. Yeah. Also, I feel like Europe and America colonized enough of the world over the last century and toppled enough governments in the process. Sure. Or centuries, I should say. I guess I'm thinking of like, I mean, specifically, I was thinking of Japan, but I don't know enough about history anywhere in the world to confidently say that Japan has always been (laughs) in that spot um, with those borders and hasn't like moved over onto other land masses. Anyway, like, yeah, I think the new Republic's going to destroy itself eventually, but like, do you think that would happen before the empire destroyed itself? I mean, in new canon, it certainly does because the first order lives on and the new Republic, like, both self-destructs and also explodes. And so they had a real, I mean, the first order, which is just the remnants of the empire had a real shot at like having a second go. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. They still have a thousand systems. If, if Paleon is successful and not undermined. That's the thing. I think the empire is even more likely than the Republic to undermine itself. Well, at this stage, it certainly is like, like what I meant to say was, if Paleon manages to get this problem under control, I think his empire has a shot at surviving, at outliving the New Republic. If he lives long enough? Not even if he lives long enough, just, I, I was going to say, like, he can die. Okay. I mean, the, I, I think that I think that both sides are kind of optimistic about the time frame in which the other side is going to cannibalize itself. Fair enough. Like, the reality is, it usually takes a long time. And then it happens all at once. Yeah. And you don't know when that trigger is going to happen. Or what will pull it. What favor will Korn end up doing for Card to keep his Jedi powers a secret? Probably something that will get Card a discount with Booster. You think Korn has that kind of pull? I think Mirax might. Okay. I just, otherwise, I'm like... I'm not sure what other favors. I guess Corrin's fairly high up in New Republic military. Like, if Card needs an in or some info from there. But I also feel like Card's not going to ask Corrin for a favor that will, like, compromise Corrin's morals, if that makes sense. Like, Card, for whatever reason, really respects, it seems to me, like, other people's boundaries. Yeah, he's, despite his job as a very moral person, I feel like. Yeah, like, I feel like he's like, this doesn't feel immoral for me, but I understand it feels immoral for you, so I'm not gonna, like... I feel like he'll find a way to make the favor something that, A, probably only Corrin could do for him, but B, won't cause Corrin too much discomfort. 
Or like I said, it's something very vital and they're desperate. Yeah. Maybe he's going to back pocket that one for a long time. Maybe. How mad would Booster be at Corn for getting one of his ships impounded? Superficially mad. Like mad for the sake of being mad. It's the cost of doing business for this guy. I mean... He's always mad at something. It's not Corrin's fault. It was actually a very good idea, It's a clever plan. Yeah. Who or what is flying the mysterious ship, and why did they say Thrawn's name? His full name. I was about to say, you should really specify they say his full name. I am head empty, no thoughts, just one thought. They're Chiss. Like, they're Chiss, right? I don't know. Okay, Oh, I do know, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> this is my reasoning, Your Honor. I'm a judge now? <laughs> okay. I'm like a lawyer presenting my evidence. Do I get a gavel? To the court. Sure. That was not a very satisfying banging. You're upsetting the dog. <laughs> you wanted a better bang. I did not say that. <laughs> okay, evidence. They use his full name. This is the easiest part. Because, like, you know, Mara knows his full name, but comparatively few individuals she's know pro- his full I feel like she's name. the only person alive who knows that right now, other than maybe Pelion. Yeah. That is how his name's pronounced, huh? And I'm still just not going to do it. I, I go back and forth, yeah. <laughs> Pelion. <laughs> so, yeah, like, the fact that they use his full name. This message is beamed at multiple information brokers with enormous resources on both of their ships and neither of their ships recognize the code or language that is being used. So it seems like it's from outside of Republic slash Imperial space. Too bad 3PO wasn't there. The one time he might have been useful. Yeah. Man, speaking of 3PO, I have suspicions about that droid. We'll probably talk about this in the episode, but Leia has a remark as they go into the um, Alderaan Tower, is how I think of it in my head. That ever since 3PO was disassembled and reassembled, he has been very quiet. And that just doesn't seem like him. He doesn't, um, he's not ashamed after these things happen to him. He blames everyone around him. So. I mean, that one wasn't his fault. Huh? It wasn't his fault, though. So that one's right. No, I'm just saying, like, he, he's not, he, that's not the way he sulks. Oh, I He sulks loudly. So suspicious. Anyway, back to the question at hand. The other thing is the ship. It's a strange ship. Imperial-ish design? These are the people who are who are looking at this ship with their eyeballs. Cornhorn. Mirax. Did she change her last name? Who knows? Booster. Card. Mara. None of them recognize the ship. Their ships don't recognize the configuration of this ship. I just feel like all signs point to it being from outside of it, Imperial and Republic space. And they're using Thrawn's full name, which nobody knows. So they're Chiss. Okay. And I think they're looking for Thrawn, obviously. (laughs) And I don't know why exactly. Maybe his exile was a timed thing and they're coming to collect him. But now they can't find him because he didn't stay on his exile planet. So probably they're planning to re-exile him after they find him for disobeying the rules or whatever. Or maybe they're facing some kind of very scary external thing. And they either A, need him back or B, they're ready to like play ball with the Empire 
because of said scary external thing. But sadly, there's no empire left to play ball with. So they're going to have to take their sticks and go home. What are the stories behind the comet and Botha we going to do? I don't really know. I've been thinking about this for like a day now because I've actually really thought about these questions in advance this time. And I just don't have a good a good idea. I have some ideas, but I feel like they're very flimsy. Like they do not feel like my whole they're the chiss idea from just a minute ago. Possibility. They're putting themselves in place to make themselves look like enforcers of order and peace. If civil war breaks out, it'll look good for them to come in and like stabilize things, basically. Other possibility. They're just there to stage something. And use it for propaganda. Like maybe they're coming in to side with the Bothans, put the Bothans under their protection, which is really going to polarize things in the New <laughs> Republic. Yeah, I don't know. Something mischievous. What's up with George Cardas? Yeah, what is up with George Cardas? And why is there an apostrophe in the middle of his name? Because Zahn loves apostrophes. He loves them so much. It's, yeah. We're really over Zahn's love of apostrophes. We are. <clears throat> I don't know what's up with this guy, because I don't remember Outbound Flight well enough. And he apparently wasn't in the Thrawn trilogy nope. at all, even though I thought he was at least name-dropped somewhere in there. He was name-dropped in I, Jedi. Yeah. But, like, narrowly. So, if I remember Outbound Flight at all correctly, he was in contact with Thrawn at one point. But there's nothing mysterious, Tom, there's nothing mysterious here. I have read Outbound Flight. You're not trying to not spoil it for me. I just can't freaking remember. Okay. So just tell me what you know. I believe he was, yes. I believe he met Thrawn. Okay. But that's all I remember. Okay. So what is up with George Cardos? I don't know. Why is Card so scared of him? That's the real question, isn't it? Scaredy cat. Why do you think he's scared of him? Um, they were probably lovers. <laughs> <laughs> Cardos broke his heart. No, I have no idea. Probably Cardos has some like information on Card that Card doesn't want to have out in the universe. Card's a clone. Oh my god. Card. That's why there's so many R's in his name. <laughs> You're right. That other R is extra. Right? Hmm. Maybe. But you you saying that makes me think that that's not true. I, among other reasons that I think that that's not true. <laughs> will Bella Bless be able to decipher the message? And if he does, will Paleon still be there? I mean, Paleon seemed like he was settling in for a good long siege at the end of Spectre of the Past, so I hope so. I don't know how Bella Bliss is going to be able to decipher the message, though. I really think that Paleon needs to like send someone else. So actually, I think that's what he's going to do. He's going to send somebody else with another envoy. <laughs> How will Paleon react to hearing about Thrawn's return? I could really see him going one of two ways. The first thing I said when they brought Flim out in this book to you was Paleon's going to be freaking mad because he's going to know. That was my gut instinct was like, he's going to know. He was on the bridge when Thrawn yeah. died. If there's anyone who would know it's him. Yeah. However... I think in the decade that has passed since Thrawn's death, there has been a sort of mythologizing of him. Oh, yes. And he was a person who was prone to mythologization even while he was alive. So I could see Paleon in his, you know, hopes 
that somehow the situation can be rectified, believing like, well, I just didn't see what I thought I saw, or Thrawn had a contingency plan. Like, he always thinks a million steps ahead. So, of course, he thought about this outcome, and that's why he was not fussed that he was being murdered. That's why he was just like, oh, it was so artfully done, and died. (laughs) So, I can really see him going one of two ways. I still think if they try to put Flim in front of Paleon for any extended period of time, He's going to know, and he's going to be furious. He is not going to want to go along with his plan. What sort of weapon created the ravine that Mara flew through, and who fired it? I really meant to go back and read this passage, because I know that Mara thought to herself, like, maybe something fired down this ravine and created it, but like... Because it matched up with the tower that was destroyed. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, I just didn't spend a lot of time ruminating over it. I mean... My initial thought about this place is that it's like a um an outpost for the Chiss, that that's what's in that fortress. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's true anymore. I don't necessarily think it's not true. I just I kind of wonder if at some point a star destroyer came through here. I think a star destroyer could do could do the ravine, maybe. They're made for orbitable bombardment. I don't know if it's that precise. That's the thing, because this felt like one shot almost, the way she described it. I don't know. Maybe this is where they tested the Death Star. Maybe. (laughs) Kind of like um, the way it fires on Scarif in Rogue One. Single reactor ignition. Yeah. Yeah, or Jetta. Though, mm, the way it goes on Jetta makes it seem like... But this is the EU, so we don't freaking know. Um... (laughs) All these versions of canon, so complicated. Yeah, the way it it looks on Jetta, like a clean ravine like that would not have come of even a single reactor firing. I like that, different cannons. Okay, so alternative thought is actually that this planet was once dwelled upon by enemies of the Chiss, and they have a weapon that did that. Okay. Those are my wild guesses. I got nothing. Now, here's a question that's not written down. How will Mara react to Luke being the only one to come rescue her? Oh, I mean, obviously, she's just going to fall all over herself, instantly fall in love. All of the tension will be forgotten. (laughs) How is she going to react when Luke tells her that Card insisted that he come? And gives him the Jade's fire. Oh, my God. (laughs) She's going to realize what has been happening for, like, this... uh, I don't know, entire whatever period of time it is, because it felt to me at one point in this book like Han and Card were both somehow trying to set these two up. A little bit. Which is very funny. It's a quick turnaround from Han's feelings about Mara in um, the Corellian trilogy. On the other hand, maybe he thinks that it'd be good for Luke to be involved with a woman who kind of still vestigially wants to kill him. Just a little bit. I don't know. I think she's going to be confused if I'm if I'm saying what I really think is going to play out. I think she's going to be relieved because Luke is very capable and she knows that. But I think she's going to be perplexed about why he tore himself away from all of the like, you know, she had a lot of internal monologue in this book about like all of the big grand like goings on he's got going on and like 
all of that stuff. She's going to be perplexed about why he's like well, tiptoed away from that just to come see her. And then um, he's going to be like, because the bats recognized me, obviously. I was imagining them as bats. I don't know if they're really bats, but that's fair. The creatures. Oh, I can't wait to see how. However, she reacts. I can't wait to see it. I hope it's satisfying. Oh man, I hope he tries to sneak up on her and because of reasons, and she tries to murder him in reaction. Minor spoiler. Okay. She's gonna know he's coming, right? Well, yeah, she has the force, right? She's been on this planet at this point for two weeks. Uh huh. She's gonna look terrible. Oh, that's delightful. I mean, Mara never looks terrible. Right, so... They walked through a forest on Mirkir together for, like, days and she, days. She actually will spend the time to make herself look presentable before he, she, he gets to her. What is her reasoning for doing that? I will not say. Oh, my God. Oh, God, I gotta start reading this book tonight. That better happen in the first couple of pages or I'm gonna riot. <laughs> I'm gonna just start, like, tearing the house down. Please don't. It is... Okay, Everything about this ship for me is just built on, like, memories that I don't have anymore. You know? Do you know what that's like? <laughs> it's so weird. Like, because I read them, I read these books as a child, and I got a flicker of recognition from some of the stuff in Spectre of the Past, but much less than in the Thrawn trilogy. I think maybe you read that one a couple of times i think i did for one they're easier reads yeah much oh more God. faster paced yeah specter of the past is a brick I, definitely for 13 year old me the yeah. trilogy was easier and so i i have the memory of being very committed to this relationship but i have no memory of why like none whatsoever so I'm like very invested in what happens next, and I have no idea if I'm gonna like it or not. Here's what I'll say about my experience with this ship. When I first read this, spoilers, we all know they get together, they get married. Mm -hmm. It surprised me, honestly. Yeah, it would have to if you're not a crazy person who reads a lot of fan fiction. But what actually made the relationship work really well for me was their time together once they're married. Mm. Well, that's boring. God. Uh I'm sorry. Just to get on my soapbox so briefly. The fun thing in romance, especially romance in fiction, is the chase. That is true to an extent for them. but It's I, the buildup. But I, 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 the thing is, for me, because there isn't a ton of buildup. No, there's not. I'm going to have to write some fan fiction after this. Good. But <laughs> it's their time together that I really do love. All right. Fair enough. All right. Final question. Okay. Will Han and Leia actually get a vacation on Packwork Minor? Absolutely not. <laughs> they will have half a day of visiting a quaint farm in the countryside, having fresh milk from whatever the heck kind of cow they have there, and then all chaos will break loose. Follow-up question. Think they'll meet those farmers? 100% yes. Because everybody very conveniently meets exactly where they're supposed to meet Inspector of the Past, so why not in Vision of the Future? Is it vision or visions? Vision. Vision, singular. My vision of the future is that Thrawn is actually alive. Because Ahsoka's coming out soon. Ahsoka will be out for several months by the time this post. I know, but for me, Ahsoka is like a week away right now. For a listener, it's over. They know more than me. 
That's how time travel works. Exactly. We should stop. I'm getting loopy. <laughs> Next up, we'll be turning to Tales from Dwellers Palace and reading The Great God Quay, The Tale of Barada and the Weakways, written by George Alec Effinger. And you can look forward to that coming out on December 17th. Thanks to Thomas for editing. And thanks to Crystal Corner. It was a crazy idea. And thanks to you for listening. You can email us at tk331podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter slash X. If it still exists, if it's not being paid for, we're not on there if it's being paid for at that point. <laughs> at tk331podcast. Uh, if you like this podcast, please tell a friend to leave a review and or rating for us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast reviewing platform of your choice. And now here it is, Emoto Star Wars. Yes, Skywalker said, a shadow crossing his face. Could you get word to Leia on Coruscant and tell her where I've gone? I'll go myself, Card promised, getting to his feet again. We'll leave as soon as you're gone. Thank you, Skywalker said. He turned and headed for the office door. You said you saw Mara in a vision, Card called after him. What was she doing? Skywalker paused in the doorway. She was in a rocky place floating in water, he said, not turning around. And she looked dead. Card nodded slowly. I see. He was still standing there, gazing at the open door long after Skywalker had gone.